Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I always laugh. I don't know what it is when I look at my guests that I have a warm, a fuzzy feeling for, and I certainly do for my guest today, Dave Mandel. I've always had a great feeling about Dave. There's just something about him. He walks in a room and you just, I don't know, you just feel ah, like everything is going to be okay. And as I've talked about many times before, there's the two kinds of people that walk in a room. There's the kind of guy who walks in the room and it's like, ah, everything's going to be okay. And there's the guy who walks in the room and the hair on the back of your neck stands (laughs) up and you know, not good. (laughs) And hopefully you don't have to work with that person every day. But before I start, I want to thank everybody so much for all the support. Been incredible. I'm so grateful and so appreciative. You can't even imagine. And being asked back to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival, where my guest is going to be this summer as well for the second time for me in three years. And it's all because of the support that you guys have given to the show. Because I can guarantee you, if the show wasn't being supported by you, no call from Montreal. They don't need you. They don't want you. They don't care about you if you're not doing anything that's moving the needle And for some reason, you guys have helped this show do that. And it's flattering, it's humbling, and I am grateful. I want to start off with this cold open. And as you know, I never know what I'm going to say. And I said, look at Dave. I think back to my experiences 
on a show that he was a huge, huge part of and one of the writers of the show, an instrumental part of the program. And so when I was there, I had a lot of people who were on the show during the time when Dave was there. People that I worked with at the time were people like Jay Moore and Tracy Morgan, Daryl Hammond and Jim Brewer. And although I work with her now, I didn't work with her then, but I was very close to Sherry O'Terry back then. And the navigation at Saturday Night Live is an incredible thing that is so hard to understand and so hard to explain to everybody about how it works. And rather than go into the different details and machinations of how it is, suffice to say, you're working with a group of people closely who I would say would be around 50 people really closely. When I'm talking about 50, I'm talking about the cast members, I'm talking about the writers, I'm talking about the segment producers, I'm even talking about the cue card person. I'm talking about the executives underneath Lorne who were producing the show like Marcy Klein or people who were coming up through the ranks during the time. And I call it this tight group of people because they would all be together in one room besides when the show was taking place during the times when ideas were pitched to the group. And the thing that fascinated me, and I've been in those rooms because I've had hosts on the show, and I've walked through the hallways with different people during the wee hours of the night. And one of the things that's hard to understand because the show works the way it works and it's in a system that doesn't even seem like a normal system, because where Dave works now on Veep, it's a completely different system than Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live starts on a Monday, and if you're a new cast member, you're like, oh, all right, it's my first week. Let me get there at 9 a.m. Let me get there early and, and, and hang out. I know there's going to be a Monday meeting. This is really exciting. And then you're sitting on a couch for eight hours, and people start strolling in. And if there's a meeting that's scheduled to be at maybe four or five, who knows? Might start at six, might start at seven, might start at eight. And when it starts, you're like, oh my God, how could a show that's been on the air for 40 some odd years not have this really tight formatted structure of how things are going to be and how people come in and when they come in? Because it's odd because when you're around Lorne Michaels, you're with a guy who's, and again, I don't use this term loosely, a genius. Anybody who's been working and creating and running a show for over 40 years, and it's still significant and relevant, that's not luck. That's a man who knows how to navigate and is a genius. But what's unique about that is when you get to the show, and I think he would say this if he were sitting here, you really don't have a tight-knit structure of how you feel things are going. When you're writing your sketches after you pitch them, you're up until the wee hours of the morning. There's guys working there until 4 in the morning on Tuesday sometimes. So when I was there, there were people who knew how to navigate well through the structure of the system of, I guess, organized chaos in a way, but chaos is good in that sense because it creates brilliant sketches and brilliant content. And so there were people that I work with who 
They might not have had the greatest cred in the world, like Tracy Morgan. He might never have really gotten on. As a matter of fact, Tracy did a sketch on Weekend Update where he made fun of the fact that all of his segments through the whole year were the goodnights, and they showed his highlights of him waving goodnights. But he knew how to kind of navigate, knew how to play it, so he kept his job and he kept going. Daryl Hammond went through many trials and tribulations on the show. Many things that are even unspoken that I can't even talk about that were very, very difficult times. But he knew how to put his head down and just go through it and knew how to navigate with the writers and have the relationship with the writers. Because normally what the writers want, they want to hang out with the people who are going to get sketches on. Guess who the most popular person to hang out with during the time that Dave was there? It was Will Ferrell, because Will always got on. And if you're a writer writing stuff, you want to get your shit on. And the people that weren't getting stuff on, it was harder for them to do it, so they would try their best to hang out and do whatever. But I remember a cast member there I represented, Jim Brewer. Probably, for the record, I haven't really talked about Jim Brewer that much on this show. For those of you who don't follow Jim Brewer or know Jim Brewer, or ever seen Jim Brewer perform, probably one of the most talented performers and funniest guys you will ever see do stand-up in your entire life. And in person as well, a guy who literally can just make anyone laugh in a second, the guy can go on and off like a light switch and make it happen. But for some reason at the show, Jim couldn't figure out how to navigate at his best with the writers and make things work and make them feel like they were empowered, which was really shocking because Jim, one of the most lovable, huggable, likable people around other comics and other people, you just always wanted to be around Jim. But sometimes things can happen where you do things and you don't really understand the ramifications. You're just trying to get yourself to the next level. And I remember Jim got offered a cover story on a rock and roll magazine in the New Jersey, Long Island area, which was very popular. And they did the interview with him. And in the interview, he talked about how he wasn't getting things on as much. And basically, in its own way, it sort of talked about the writers in a way where he wasn't getting what he needed from them in that way. But you know, when an article comes out, people read things. Articles and text, your texts, everybody, they don't reflect tone. Articles don't reflect tone unless it's a masterful writer. And so naturally all the writers read the stuff in the magazine about how Jim wasn't necessarily clicking with the writers the way he felt he should be, and I'm generalizing here. And that was a tough time for Jim. And when it came time to pick up his contract, I remember Lauren calling me and saying, we're going to extend it. We don't know if we're going to pick him up or not. And then he told me he was going to make a decision by a certain date. And I remember I was always very good at writing letters. It's something my mother always taught me. It's a dying art, writing letters. And I wrote this incredibly passionate letter to Lorne telling him how much I felt that Jim Brewer would be great for the show and just stick with him. He's only had two years on. Mistakes happen. People say things. And 
he can create better relationships with people and it will end up working. And I guarantee you, he will not disappoint you. He'll give everything he has to the show. And I remember Lauren called me at like midnight, the night before he was supposed to make that decision. And he called me and he told me, look, Barry, your letter was amazing. He actually said it's a dying art and I really appreciate it. And I really like Jim, but I just can't get the support of the writing staff as a whole. It's too far gone. I can't do it. And granted, I do have veto power. I can make decisions on my own. But in this case, I feel that it wouldn't be the right thing for the show and wouldn't be the right thing for the writers and it wouldn't be the right thing for Jim. And I'm sorry, but I can't. I can't do it and I'm going to let him go. And as I sit across from Dave Mandel, I think of a guy who seems to have always known how to navigate, a guy who always figures out a way to make things work. And even though he stayed at SNL three years, it's not like he went from SNL and basically went into a coma and nobody saw him again. The guy always works. And he always works because when you see him, you hang around with him, you know he's a really, really wonderful guy. You know he's very gifted. You know he's very talented. You know people love being around him. But that's not all it takes to being a great artist. You have to know how to navigate and you have to know how to create relationships that last the test of time. And if you do do anything that upsets anybody along the way, you have to know how to have the skills in your emotional toolbox to clean each one of them up individually so you can move forward and have a chance to work effectively in this business. So if there's any lesson from anything having to do with Dave Mandel and the story of Jim Brewer, you can be talented, you can be funny, you can do anything you want, but you have to be in a situation where you know what you're saying, you're cognizant of what you say. Never write anything down or have anything documented that you wouldn't share with your grandparents or anybody in your life that could look over it a hundred times and say, okay, this is okay. And if you take the care in your career regarding these situations where you really, really think about what you're doing and how you talk to people and how you communicate to other people that might get the word out to the people you work with, I think you're going to be great in your career. And I can guarantee you, if you follow those rules and have the kind of talent and the navigational skill that Dave Mandel has, you're going to have an extraordinary career. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this.
Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am here. I am excited. This is fantastic. We're here with Dave Mandel. This is going to be a great podcast. He hasn't done that many. He's only done one other podcast in his life, and we're going to get to the heart of what the journey is all about, and from his humble beginnings to where he is now on a show that's probably one of the top 50 shows of all time, in my opinion. I wonder what his opinion is. I hope that's the same. So here goes. I'm going to give Dave not the long, drawn-out intro that I normally give people that puts them to sleep. I'm going to give him the concise intro, and I hope he likes it. I actually worked with him and his assistant for this bio because I knew that he'd bring some humor to it. Because when I do the bio, I normally have absolutely no sense of humor at all. So here it goes. Dave Mandel is the showrunner and executive producer of Veep. What a show. He has been a multi-Emmy-nominated and multi-Emmy-losing writer for such shows as Saturday Night Live from 92 to 95. Seinfeld, where he wrote The Bizarro Jerry, a.k.a. Manhands Show and The Betrayal, the backwards episode with Peter Melman. Curb Your Enthusiasm, and even an episode of The Simpsons, which was the Treehouse of Horror 23 episode with Brian Kelly. Additionally, he wrote Clerks, the cartoon, which got no Emmy nominations. He is the co-writer of such films as Eurotrip. Oh, is there anything funnier? The Dictator, and if you press him on it and give him two Diet Cokes, he'll tell you the cat in the hat. His directing credits include Veep, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Comedians, great show, I love that, and Eurotrip, uncredited in parentheses. 
He is an avid collector of original comic book art and Star Wars memorabilia, if you have any to sell him. But one thing he won't be selling is the Writers Guild Award he won for writing the infamous Pool Guy episode on Seinfeld. Actually, I would sell that because uh, I got that award like the year before they changed the award. So the one they gave me looks like I won a bowling contest somewhere in the Midwest. (laughs) And then they changed it to this very elaborate like wings flying, like something that really looks like an award. So my Writers Guild Award literally looks like I made it for myself. And then they've now changed it to this thing. And they're like, well, you can get one of those if you want. It's like, I know, but it's weird because the picture is me holding this just horrific. I mean, it is the most, only the Writers Guild, the most sort of self-hating group on earth would make the the, the worst award thing you've ever seen in your life. I mean, honestly, like if you were in a mall, you could do a better job than what I I won. But anyway, nothing we can do about that now. So, sorry. Oh, that's all good. (laughs) Please welcome my guest today, Dave Mandel. This is awesome. I feel so good inside. I don't know what it is. I don't even want to ask a question. It's so wonderful. <laughs> we could just sit in silence. I think the audience would really enjoy that. <laughs> We've never done that before. Just sit admiring each other. <laughs> well, I'll be admiring you. You won't be admiring me, I'm sure. One person I talked to, it was like, I didn't know what to say. Like I was interviewing them. They said they listened to the show. I said, oh, I'm so flattered you listened to the show. She said, well, I listened to it at one and a half speed. <laughs> I said, because you're so slow and drawn out, I have to get past you to the other person. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about a few different things because we talked about so many different parts of the navigation. When's the last time you actually went home, sat on the couch, and said to yourself, God, I was a real asshole today? It was probably more recent than I'd like to admit. You know, we started shoot. I, I started working on Veep. Uh, we're in we're we're early June right now, and they sort of approached me with the fact that Armando Iannucci was leaving the show like last February, so a year ago, February. And I started talking to Julia and HBO about and Armando the created sh- the show. He was the creator and did the show for the first four years. Now, this is what's odd about it. Normally, in a television show, when you get somebody like Julia Louis Dreyfus. You write and create the show with that person. So when I saw the show originally and I saw that she was the star of it and I saw that he created it alone, normally a star does not go into a vehicle where they don't have a hand in writing and creating it. It's very, very rare that a comedic star will do that. It's not rare for a dramatic star to do that. You wouldn't think that David Caruso is creating CSI. But in comedy, if you look at all the great comedies, except for a select few like Home Improvement and Roseanne, where Matt Williams sort of took those stand-up, took those backs, stand-up yeah. things and said it was based on the stand-up of, and they really didn't negotiate hard to get it. Ray Romano didn't get it on Everybody Loves Raymond, but Phil would even acknowledge that they created together. It just didn't happen that way, the way it was negotiated. But normally now... That's the way it always happens. So do you know how that came I mean, about? I think, I think the sort of the unique situation, and you're right, it is rare. And I'm sure at the time, and again, I don't want to put words in her mouth. I'm sure at the time, you know, Julia as a free agent was probably being offered a million things. I think it, in this case, part of, this, part of how it probably occurred, if I had to guess, was that 
you know, Armando had sort of done sort of his version of this back in, uh, in the UK, they had done the show, uh, not it's obviously wasn't vice president, but with uh, Peter Capaldi and it was sort of about, you know, the, I guess he was the spin doctor of sort of the opposition party. So it was sort of a veep like political show. And so I think the fact that sort of HBO was sort of bringing it not exactly over, he had done the movie, uh, in the loop, I think it was called, which was at the Pentagon. And then they were kind of trying to do, I think, a Pentagon show. And at some point realized that vice president would be the ultimate, like sort of least powerful job. So I think because he was, they were, he was sort of bringing a lot of that good sort of like, not baggage, it's not the, really the right word, but he kind of, there was a, there was a sort of a power behind it that he kind of created this thing. And then I think for him, and again, I wasn't there for any of it. He had this really incredible part, and I think it was a mutual recognition. So, of you know, Julia for the part and him for Julia. And again, I wasn't there for any of it, but I do assume in this case it was because it was sort of he had a past with the concept, at least. But you're right, very rare. Got it. And so I interrupted you were no, talking no, 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 about no. the asshole thing. Well, oh yeah. So, um, so anyway, so I've been working on this show now. So I, I sort of once it was announced that. Armando was leaving. I had had no pre, I wouldn't be as incredibly always as trying to be clear about this. I had no involvement other than being a fan of Veep. I watched the show on Sunday nights with my wife, but I had nothing to do with it. I didn't work there. I didn't do anything. Um, but when he decided to leave, they came, they came to me, which was obviously very nice. And once I decided to do it, started talking about it and really started like, you know, working on it officially, like in May of last year. So at this point, you know, it's been, it's been over a year and I, 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 Sounds silly. I'm I'm exhausted. I I'm 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 fried. I reach the end of the day and I can't make a decision. Uh, my mother is visiting right now. My little guy is about to graduate from kindergarten, and I don't know. She tried to ask me something about like when to serve the dinner last night or something, and it was just literally like I don't know. I, I I'm I've looked at so many graphics today on the last two episodes of Veep. I can't answer questions. I'm unable to answer questions. So I have been at that point for about two months. And, I, you know, there was like sort of a point like about, a, I don't know, a week or two ago where I, I think I just was snapping. I was sitting on the editor with one of my editors working on uh, on like the last episode. And I was just snapping at his inability to read my mind. Do you know what I mean? Which is impossible, of course. No one can read anybody's mind. But it was sort of like... I was giving half-assed explanations of the edit I wanted, and then he kind of did it wrong, and I was just just annoyed. And and then and, you know, when you get home, and you go, "He's such a good editor," and he's so. And then the 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 episode, um, which is the ninth episode, we were slight, we were out of order, um, but it's this. I, I don't want to ruin anything, but uh, it, it's this interesting kind of structured episode, and so it was it was a credit to him as the editor as much as anything, and. Again, I was just like, I, I just, I know I was at my wits end and it was just sort of like, you kind of think to yourself, all right, I'm going to go in tomorrow and make sure I sort of just let him know what a good job he's doing. Cause I was just being a cocksucker. I don't know. You know, and it just, just snappy. You know what I mean? It was just like, and when you walk yeah. in there first thing the next morning, <laughs> tell our audience how you clean things up. You know, you, you, you know, it's, you start with your small talk, how you doing and all that kind of stuff. You start rolling and then, you know, it's that sort of like, you know, all of a sudden you, you feel like you're in third grade again and it's like, oh, that looks real. You know, you sort of try and compliment something and then kind of go, hey, you know, if I haven't said it, I just want you to know how good this is and that kind of stuff. And the other thing that I try and do is, 
you know, if, if someone's seen a cut that night, for example, to let him know, hey, you know, Julia saw it and she just loved it. I just wanted you to know that and stuff like that. You know, and again, you're trying, you don't want to be heavy handed, you know, and I don't think he took it. And that's the good thing. We've worked together. He was uh, an editor on Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. Actually, a really wonderful editor and a filmmaker in his own right, a guy named Roger Nygaard. Um, and I was just snappy. I mean, there's no, you know what I mean? But I don't think he didn't take it personally and we got, you know what I mean? But it just, it just was, it was just, it's been a long year. Uh, how else can you put it? But I knew it and he knew it. Do you know what I mean? Now tell me the last time you remember when the roles were reversed and somebody was an asshole to you and how did they clean it up or did they never clean it up? Uh, the one that comes to mind yeah, never cleaned it up. Never I, find, I find most people don't clean it up. I mean, that's my own experience, unfortunately, is that, uh, I mean, I had a, I mean, this is not the one I was thinking of, but years ago when I, uh, when Seinfeld ended, and I don't mean this to sound egotistical, but the various production companies and networks, which at that point, the laws had just changed, you know, it was that, that, uh, Sin Fine or Sign Fin or however yeah, they, whatever yeah. it was, which meant that the networks for the first time were allowed to be their own production companies. That's Previous right. to that, production companies made shows, networks aired them, and it was church and state, completely separate. That's right. And Castle Rock was the right. production company of record for Seinfeld. Exactly. And the reason was, as the story goes, Jerry was under a deal at NBC and they didn't even care if he did anything. They were just holding him so that he didn't host another show on another network. Jerry was under a late night deal. One of the head guys from late night, Rick yeah. Ludwin put him under a deal. It was a very unusual deal. And Seinfeld, as many people might know, got the smallest order in history. I think it was four yeah, it was episodes. Four episodes, but it was because Jerry wanted to do a show. They didn't really, I mean, they were just happy to have him locked in and not hosting a Tonight Show rival, I think, on CBS. So Jerry wanted to make the show. And they basically said to him, you have to go find a production company. We need someone to make it. And he said, who? And they said, go to Castle Rock. I mean, again, this is my understanding of the story. Um, because NBC could not own their own show. That all changed right around 1998. I would sort of argue it's part of what ruined television or certainly a lot of comedy on television. We can talk about that if you want also. Because, of course, once you can be your own production company, why would you ever buy from any other production company? It hurt drama a little bit. I think it really hurt comedy because I think it just... It was the end of the big production companies like Castle Rock. They either had to get bought up by other people or whatnot. Um, but anyway... Long story short, when Seinfeld ended, all of the the different Seinfeld writers were, we were kind of headhunted a little bit. We all signed development deals with the various different companies. And, you know, at the time we were Seinfeld. And so people- There was they, a bidding war yes, for you, my friend. Of, yes, they, were, they came at us and it was good. It, it was, was a big good bidding stuff. war yeah. for you. So it was nice. It was very nice. So we all went to these various places and I went to, uh, I signed with- uh, Touchstone Television, which was run by at the Dean time a guy Valentine. named Dean Valentine, um, and a good another good friend of mine was working there, a guy named Pete Aronson. Of course, and um, so I signed there, and I was really excited. And I signed there. I don't know. Let's say it was in February, and I was a, the show ended in May, and in June I was away on a little vacation, and I get like I don't remember. It wasn't an email because I don't think I was checking email, but it, all of a sudden I get like a phone call or something, and it's like. 
Dean Valentine's leaving to go to UPN and soon Pete was out and it was just a whole, it just like the people I thought I was going to work for, it all changed. Um, anyway, I did some shows at ABC. One of them was the, the clerk show and whatever. And when it came to the clerks thing, when we, when Kevin and I sold it to ABC, they were in dead last place while it was being animated in Korea. Um, they create, they had who wants to be a millionaire and they became first place. And guess what? They no longer were interested in clerks. So the Super Bowl that year, we had an ad for clerks on the Super Bowl and then they proceeded to just dump us to a June launch, like a mid June launch. And they aired like three episodes and that was it, I think, or whatever. And so now cut to a, I don't remember, like a, probably a year later, uh, I'm going with Peter Melman, uh, the Seinfeld writer Peter Melman. We, uh, we were going to the Palm to have dinner. I walk into the Palm, and there is one of the, uh, the ABC executives. Uh, uh, and she's, I see, as I walk in, I see who it is, and she's talking to Melman, who I don't think necessarily was, he, I shouldn't say, he was not doing it on purpose. So he had done work at, at ABC as well. Um, and I walked over, and she was so very thrilled to see me. And, hey, how are you? And I have no interest in, hey, how are you, when you fucking, they did this thing to me when they canceled, when they canceled Clerks, I read about it in Variety. They didn't call me. And when I said, why didn't you call me? They claimed that they called my office at 8 p.m. or something, and I wasn't there. If you wanted to get a hold of me, you can fucking get a hold of me. And they treated me like dog shit and then had the nerve like a dog who doesn't know when he takes a shit on your rug to be very happy to see you and go, hi, how are you? And I just didn't say a word. I just fucking stared. I just, I have no interest in any of this. Uh, and Peter was really enjoyed that. He bought me dinner. He said that was one of the better things he'd ever seen. But uh, I just, these people who don't take responsibility for their actions, I, I just have no patience for it anyway. Well, how do you have patience for this business then? I'm not sure. Sometimes I don't. I mean, it's funny. Uh, you know, the, the best you can do is, and, and, and Veep speaks to this, is I, I got very lucky enough to sort of get invited into this situation. Lucky? Uh, there, were, there were many choices in the world. Lucky? Could have, all right, fine. Do you think if you hadn't worked with Julia on Seinfeld, you would have been called into that office to work on you know, the show? You know, and this is not to take anything away from Julia, who obviously we did have that relationship. This isn't no, an no. indictment of your talent, but I mean no, to no. just make her feel comfortable. That was a big part of it. I think it also had a lot to do with... Um, the curb work that I had done curb enthusiasm at HBO. Um, they, they had had, uh, the Mike judge show, uh, the Silicon Valley and Alec Berg, who was one of my writing partners kind of went in there and helped with that show, uh, like after the pilot was done, but before the show started. So I think when this happened, I think, uh, Casey Bloys at HBO was kind of like, well, who's the next, who's the next curve guy on the bench? So, Okay, not lucky. I think I'm actually really good at what I do. There you go. You want me to say that? I do think I'm really good at what I do. What I was going to say, though, is the lucky part is that the show, Veep, is this sort of really interesting sort of, and HBO is really great about being very sort of supportive, but in the core of it, it is a non-asshole show. That, that's where I was getting to. So you try and find, you know, you said, well, how do you survive this industry? Well, you find your little islands of non-asshole. And it does start with Julia at the top, which is to say she wouldn't put up with an asshole. If you're an asshole, you're not going to be on that show. And so it is, it's obviously I put the writing staff together, but the cast, a lot of the crew and whatnot, 
it is a non-asshole region and it, it, it allows you to be in this business. That's, that's, that was sort of the point I, you, that you have to work hard to carve out these areas of non-asshole because you're right. The, the business of it will, will just, just wear you down, I guess. Now, one of the hardest things for a showrunner coming in, a new guy coming in, and it's the same in any job you're in out there in the world who's listening to this. One boss goes out, a new boss comes in, and people are on eggshells. Even Very if they so, have yeah. a contract, they're on eggshells because they know that this guy is not going to come in there and keep everybody. It's never going to happen. He has his list of people that he wants to work with. I don't care if you're at the law firm or the 7-Eleven. There's people everybody wants to work with. They're on their list and they work with them everywhere if they're available. So when Dave goes into Veep, he has a list of people that he would love the opportunity to work with on the show. Now, granted, he's not going to hire anybody without Julia's permission or the network's permission, but they trust him. And there's a finite number of staff and budget for right. the people Spots, on yeah. the staff. And there's contracts that might be some that are as little as 13 weeks left. There might be some that are two years that are guaranteed, whatever. Nothing more than that on that kind of show. And so he comes in and the first thing he's got to do is meet with everybody and make everybody feel comfortable because he can't meet with some people and make them feel comfortable. And even if he knows he's going to let go one of the other people, he still has to meet with them and say, hey, man, I just want you to know I'm judging everybody equally and I have to figure out what I'm doing here and I don't want anybody to walk on eggshells. And so how do you navigate that going in as a new person, sure. knowing that there's people who are uncomfortable? Because I imagine you can't take, let's say I'm a guy who's on the writing staff and we're friends and you can't come up to me and say, Psst, Hey, Barry, I just want you to know you're safe <laughs> because no matter how much you trust your best friend, there's a chance your best friend could have a beer somewhere and spill the beans. Well, the one thing that sort of, and again, the, there were unique elements to it all, which was the show shot in Baltimore with an entire British writing staff that was a lot of guys that had worked for many years with Armando. Some of them were people he had elevated up the level. Some of them had started even as his assistants and stuff. So it was an all British staff and I guess to some extent very Armando centric with all British directors, some of which whom were people who worked on the show. At the same time that he, he was leaving, the Baltimore tax credits were ending for the shooting and the LA instituted some tax credits here. So we were able to get the LA tax credits and move the show to LA. When we moved the show to LA, all of a sudden, not I, I know this is beyond the writing staff, this is everything, but all of a sudden, and I think this actually worked to my advantage, all of a sudden I wasn't the only new guy because we were moving the show to LA it meant new crew, a lot of new crew people and whatever. And that, and, and I think that helped a little bit that I wasn't the only new guy. Because I think they, it was a very insular world there in a good way. They were all just working a lot in Baltimore. And had I joined it, it would have been a lot of people, even like, you know, the, the, the crew guys, the best boys and whatnot, who like had just been there longer than me. And so when we moved it to L.A., it helped. 
that we had a new prop person and a new this and a new that. So that was a nice thing. In terms of the writing, a bunch of the writers went off with Armando. They just were, they were moving on with him to his next project. There were a couple that were interested in sticking around. And I basically, and this was true of not just the writers. I know you were talking about writers, but it was with the cast too. I kind of went on a little bit of a goodwill tour. I tried to sit down and have like a bite. Like I had a lot of breakfasts and whatnot with uh, cast members just to meet them and say, hey, or grab a cup of coffee or something. Julia had a little thing at her house where I got to meet a bunch of them because I didn't know any of them. So again, it's just a little bit of saying hello, if nothing else, which felt really good to do. And then honestly, I got myself on a plane to London and it was a two-part thing. One was to meet a couple of these writers that were interested in coming back who I didn't know and wanted to talk to them. Number two was uh, one of the guys who had been uh, a director of the show to talk to him about possibly coming back and directing some episodes to give some continuity to the direction. And by the way, also to sit down with Armando and his guys, we had talked on the phone, we'd exchanged a couple of nice emails, but just to sit down with him because honestly, at the end of the day, he asked me to. He said, hey, if you get a chance, come on over here. And I don't think he would have been upset if I had said, look, man, I've got a million things to do, but he created the show. It made all the sense in the world for me to get my ass on a plane and and go and do it. And then coming back through New York, it made sense for me to stop and sit down and say hi to Anna Klumsky, who I had yet to meet because she's East Coast. And it sounds like, again, I don't necessarily think the season was good because I got on a plane and had coffee with Anna, but you know, you do want to put these people at ease. They, you know, they've been working with this guy for four years. You do want to sort of sit and be able to go, I just want to talk to you. This is some of what I'm thinking. Tell me what you're thinking. Um, I think my, some of my credits helped. I think they at least felt like they didn't find me on a street in a good way. But again, I can't say to you that we had coffee and then became best friends and, you know, went shopping together. But I think it just, it, it sort of, you know, you want that, at least it allowed the icebreaker to be earlier and then the relationship could start. And so it just made sense to do it, get myself in front of these people and say hi and be honest and go, this is what I'm thinking. This is some of the stuff I'm still trying to figure out. What do you like? I remember sitting early on with uh, Sarah Sutherland, who plays uh, uh, Catherine, the president, uh, Selena's daughter. And, you know, it was one of those funny things where we talked a lot about what we, uh, what we were, you know, the, the season that you're now seeing. I had talked to her about the fact that her grandmother was going to die and she was going to sort of come out of the closet and have this relationship with the Secret Service, you know, just a lot of stuff. And she was very excited about those stories. And sort of at the end of it, I said, and what's on your mind? And she just said, I just think every now and then that as sort of horrible as a character as Catherine is and sort of a bit of a wallflower, she just said, some of the outfits occasionally make me feel like I'm like a retarded child. You know what I mean? Like, like there are certain outfits that are funny because she's dowdy and not stylish. And she goes, and every now and then there's some that push it. And it was just the easiest thing in the world to go, great, noted, let's get you, let's have a little chat with the costume person, let's get this, whatever. But, I, I, and again, I never said to her, was that good that we did that? But by making her comfortable enough to go, this is, some, this is a little thing that bothers me and being able to just kind of go, hey, let's now all talk about it together. I don't know, you're a step or two ahead, at least I like to think. So, I mean, that was sort of my thing for going on because it's certainly with the cast, I was the new guy. With the writers, I met these Brits, um, we, a bunch of us, we did hit it off. And then, yeah, I went and I hired a bunch of people that I wanted to hire. But I'll tell you what, that's awful too. I hired a lot of people I knew well. And 
I think a lot of things went really well for us this year. I'm really happy with the show. I'm not quite sure we fully gelled ever as a writing apparatus. And there are some people I really like that aren't coming back this year, just sort of in a mutual sort of, it wasn't the best fit. And that was hard too, because it's like, do they see that it's not working? And there are people you know, whereas at least with strangers, it's kind of easier just to go, I don't know you, this isn't working out. So hiring friends and or those people on your list, there's a bit of a double-edged sword to that as well. That was a very long answer. No, it's great. <laughs> so the first time you made the call that you were going to not renew somebody or let somebody Well, I don't go. do it with a call. I will tell you again, uh, and this is my own thing. I let everybody know in person. I don't say to them, come in. I didn't say, come on in. I need to talk to you about not you not coming back. But I said, come on in. I want to talk. And I don't know. You know, again, I, I don't necessarily. I think one, one guy suspected it. One person was maybe a little blindsided. But again, I can only speak for myself. That's just not something I want HBO doing or an agent doing or something. I'm going to look, I'm going to talk to you and tell you why I don't think it was working. And you can argue with me, you can get upset, whatever, but I'm going to do it myself. I, I just, it's miserable, but I'm going to do it myself. I owe you that. I owe you the respect. And also, even if it didn't perfectly work out, you worked hard for me for a year and I owe you, you, you deserve me telling you personally, whether, even if it's not news you want. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Tell our audience a time in your career where you took one of those meetings and the person in front of you talked you out of it to give him another chance or her another chance. Never happened. It's never happened. Never happened. I don't make these decisions lightly. I mean, by the way, I haven't been in that many positions, you know, even like on Curb where Jeff Alec and I are working, we're working with Larry. It's not like there was a staff and it's not like I'm working, you know, we were quote unquote, the showrunners with Larry, but it, the show was the four of us. You know what I mean? So I ha even on some of my things, there haven't been like large staffs where this has come up that much, I will tell you. So this was actually, uh, this is, it had been a while since I'd had to fire anybody, I guess. <laughs> and fire is not the right word, you know, to just sort of a mutual parting as they say, but yeah. Are you the kind of guy who We'll sit down with somebody and say, look, I just want to let you know, 
up to this point, this is your sixth week. You got seven left. At this point in time, if I were going to make a decision, I wouldn't bring you back. But I think that there's some things that you could do. If you could just do this, 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 right. this, and this, then after the next seven weeks, I think there's a chance you could turn this right. thing around. Or are you the kind of guy who doesn't do that? I would like to be that guy. I will admit, and again, I, I hope this doesn't sound like bitching because I loved every second of it, but Veep filled my days. We were doing a lot of long shoot days on the five days a week, and then we were writing on the weekends. So there were a lot of long 15, 16 hour days, and then working on the weekends. And if I had to critique myself, and by the way, this is some of the stuff I did say to the various people, I, 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 there were things that I wish I could have nipped in the bud. There were things where I wish I had been able to be more hands-on talking to the indiv individual writers. There was a lot more where I just ended up just kind of taking it and either doing it myself or doing it with my number two or something like that, just because it had to get done. However, I guess to your point, with the new season, like talking to some of the writers that I'm bringing back, I did sit and talk with writers that I'm bringing back and say to them sort of like, look, you're coming back, but here's some stuff I want you to think about that. Here's where I thought you excelled. Here's the good things. Here's the reasons you're coming back, but here's the stuff that a drove me crazy just in a, like drives me crazy, but B also, I just think you need to work on, um, in terms of, you know, uh, Hey, you know, it just seems like you 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 just you you disappear. You you know you get sort of shy, and I don't care. Give me a bad idea, give me a good idea. I don't care. But you've got to keep talking. You've got to keep pitching. Don't talk for talk's sake. But you have to find a way to be sort of more emboldened. You know when we're looking for stuff. So that was an example of something I said to someone, which I'm hoping. I see talent there, and so I'm hoping that is a good thing. And you're right. I wish I could have done that midway through with a lot of different people just to sort of say, this is what's working, this is what's not. But it was all I could do to grab onto the reins and keep the show moving. So ideally, yes, but not not in practice. One yeah. of the things I really appreciate that I really respond to myself, I've been executive producer of tons of shows, sure. but never been a creative executive right. producer like you where you're gutting it out in the writer's room. But one of the things that I really respond well to is when somebody comes up to me and says, listen, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, what's up? Listen, I just want you to know that I really want to do so well here and I want to do so well for you. And I was wondering if you could just let me know what are the things that I'm doing great and tell me the things that I can do that can get me past things to the highest level in your eyes. I respond to that. Do you sure. respond to that when people I come up to you? I certainly would. And, and again, it, you know, there were occasional times where I was able to say, look, I think these are like, for example, we do a lot of like, once the script is kind of in form, we do a lot of, we'll, we'll identify an area and go, this is some, a place where we, we're looking for like some alt pitches, that kind of a thing. And you get a list of, you know, you get some jokes. And a lot of times, sometimes it's all just anonymous. Like I'm just being handed stuff by like a writer's assistant. And I'm looking through a long list and going, this one, this one, this one, that one, whatever. And sometimes I'm getting an email from somebody and I know who it is. And I could say, like, there's a certain tone and a kind of joke we do on Veep. And there's a certain kind of joke that is a jokey joke that is a great joke and certainly would have worked on a Seinfeld or even a Curb Your Enthusiasm, but isn't Veep. It's almost like either whether it's a joke on a joke or a joke about structure just not the kind of joke we do on Veep, um, which is a little more grounded, I guess, in some sort of fake reality. And, you know, 
um, where I'm able to go, look, this is why these are not working. They're, they're, they're jokes on jokes or whatever, and we need more of this. So there are times, and I definitely do respond. Like I said, I had dreams of like, you know, I, I, you know, I was lucky enough to be mentored early in my career. I have dreams of working with young writers. I just found that like last year during the season of Veep, you know, I, I just, it was just all we could do was get the show made. And so the notion of spending time mentoring just sort of went out the window. It just did. How would Dave Mandel, if Dave Mandel was running the show, review Dave Mandel? What are your strengths and what would somebody say? Hey, pal, you are amazing at this, 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 and this. But this, you need improvement right. here, 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 and here. Have you ever self-evaluated yourself? Yeah, you know, you, especially when you're, again, in this situation where, you know, there's a giant team of people sort of depending on you. Um, I mean, my strengths lie in the stuff that I think I've always been good at, which is, you know, st structure, story, character jokes coming out of structure and story but it is structure 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 and i will i am the first to say i i learned that at uh at sort of larry's knee larry, for larry and jerry it was always structure curb is all structure it's so much structure we don't even have scripts because we have structure we don't need you know we have you know these sort of outlines to improv off of but we always have that tight structure of what makes a curb a curb and so um you know, I think when I look to what I brought into Veep, I think I brought a little of that there that maybe whether you, I don't, in my mind, it's what I like. So it's what I brought more of to the show, whether you felt it needed it or not, that's up to the individual viewer. But I think that's something I brought to it. Um, in this season in particular, it was a very, it was very 10, very intricately connected episodes with, we're sort of solving this story of her tie. It was very tied in, and there were probably times where I guess I was probably the only one that had it in my head, and perhaps on the criticism side, didn't do a great job of sort of letting people know why and what it needed to be, because I had it up here, and so when they're trying to outline something or write something, and I'm not able to sort of share it with them, I'm sure it's frustrating. And again, I think that goes back to, as I said, I wasn't really able to give a lot of feedback. At a certain point, I kind of ended up just grabbing it from people and either setting uh, uh, Lou Morton, who is my wonderful number two on it, or me just sort of, or him working, or me working, or us working together, or, all right, now we're going to do these scenes. And people would go off and do the scenes, and the scenes would come back. And then I would go, no, 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 do it more like this, this, and this, which at some point, you know, should I have done a better job explaining what I wanted? But at the same time, you want people to give it their own thing. But again, it was that weird thing of like, and I, and I said this before with the editor story of like, I, I can't make people read my mind, but sometimes it was sort of like, that's what I wanted. And that, that, that's a hard thing. And I think it's, uh, it's probably what a lot of showrunners go through. Um, that's where I just wasn't great. Um, uh, you know, beyond that, I'm a bit of a procrastinator by nature. Um, you know, why put up, why do today what you can do the <laughs> night before? And, you know, I think that's certainly, uh, and obviously with a, with a show where you're shooting, obviously you're gonna, you can't, you can't, when, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to delay shooting. I don't want to do anything like that. But, you know, if you give me, you know, two months, you'll have a script. And if you give me a month, you'll have a script. And if you give me a week, you'll have a script. You know what I mean? But it's, 
if you give me three months, you're not necessarily going to get five scripts. And I would like to get better at that. I want to try, as I look to this season of, I just want to, you know, last season, there was a lot of like getting to know you with the writers, even though we knew each other, but the, a lot of them were new to the show and talking about what the show could be and how we solve this thing. And I, and I definitely just want to hit the ground running because the wheels kind of came off around episode four and then we were just kind of hand to mouth with the scripts, you know, just kind of working, you know, a day or two ahead of what we needed. And I, and obviously it would be wonderful on Curb, a different structure, but we would write all 10 or write all 10 outlines and then initiate production. And I don't believe we'll ever get that far along, but boy, it would be great if we went into production with six or seven DC, like scripts done. That would be exciting. And I think that is a weakness of mine that I'm working on. So there, there's, there's some analysis for you. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I remember I interviewed Don Rio, who created My Wife and Kids and so many other uh -huh. things, work with Gleason. And I interviewed him and I said, so is the summer's going to be busy for you, right? You got to get going writing those scripts. Uh, I'm, I'm going to Hawaii, <laughs> going to Hana. I'm like, what do you mean you're going to Hana? You got to go into production with... I wrote them all already, Barry. Wow. What do you mean you wrote them all? Yeah, I wrote 25 scripts already. It's all done. I said, well, how is that possible? Well, I just take a couple of days, write each one. Then I give them to the writing teams and let them work on them. And when I come back, I'll be all set. But I, wow. <laughs> I'm like, that's ridiculous. How do you do that? He said, just it's the way I've always done it. So that was kind of crazy. Yeah. I never heard of anybody doing that before. Is he available? Can I hire him? But uh, yeah. Uh, he's working on two and a half man. He's the executive producer there. So how do you maintain a great personal relationship as a showrunner, executive producer? How do you balance work and your wife and your relationship there and your child and how does somebody who it's, works so hard in a job that's so demanding not go through a divorce every second? Um, I guess the real answer is I don't know. This was the first time that I sort of had a like all-consuming job where my kids were sort of old enough to be aware of it. Do you know what I mean? Like the last time, like where I when I went off to do the dictator, which was a couple of years ago. They were still just young enough that they, I don't want to say they didn't quite understand that they knew where I was. They knew I was like in New York and that kind of thing. And they were going to come visit or I was coming back on weekends, but I don't think they could, you know, I think when you're that young time doesn't mean quite as much. And I don't think they were aware of it as much. Um, one of the reasons I was excited to move the show back to LA was I live in LA. We were shooting at Paramount 15 minutes from my house. But the truth is we could have been in Baltimore. I could have been in, I could have been in China. I, I didn't see my children. They would sometimes, you know, nudge me in the morning at 7am if I had a late call and just say hello. And I'd go hello and give them a kiss. And then I'd come home at night and they were already long asleep and I'd go look at them sleeping. Um, the weekend soon disappeared. And I will honestly say by January, the kids were kind of in open re revolt. My, my, my daughter, who's eight, was kind of giving me the, uh, you know, you can't tell me to do that. You're never here. That, 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 that was lovely uh, with, a, with a good eye roll. And my little guy, who's younger, was giving me sort of the, uh, why do you have to go to work, daddy thing, which was heartbreaking. Um, by February, my wife was sort of starting to get into open revolt, just of the just the seven days a week she was parenting, you know, alone to some extent. Um, 
And I don't have an answer. Again, I'm trying to sort of, I feel like if we can get ahead with the writing, we can, uh, maybe some of those weekends can go away. That was really the problem. We're doing things production wise. You know, we are, you know, I've sat down and spent a lot of, you know, not a huge amount of time, but we have had good conversations with uh, my producer, Morgan Sackett, with Julia, with Frank Rich, where we've sort of tried to talk about what worked, what didn't work. One of the things we're trying to do this season is go from a five-day schedule to a six-day schedule with the idea that we won't go quite as late on any given time so that more days, hopefully, then things can get done in the evening or you know, we might get done at decent hours where I could do a little writing. But when you get home after an 18-hour day, you don't want to sit down and write and try and get some of those Saturdays and Sundays back. So it's all a process. There was a whole other thing at Paramount where they have what they call the editing building, which is this horrible building over these workshops with these windowless editing offices that are just horrific. And they make everybody edit there because they couldn't rent the space out. It's the only way they can monetize the space. Um, I got to get our edit room closer where my actual office is because one that ended up happening was I didn't really get a chance to edit till Christmas. And then again, when we finally finished, as opposed to had the edit room been next door or downstairs the way it has been on every other show I've ever worked on. Hey, I'm going to go run in and look at something for 20 minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit there. I couldn't do that. So even the editing just became a a, a to-do to some extent. Here's a weird question for you. I know this has been done before and the way editing works these days, it's not as all encompassing a place where you have to edit. Have you ever thought of asking to move the editing bay in the guest house or the garage of your house. I haven't gone that far yet. If I can get it just into where, where my office is, I feel like that would be something. Um, but I know, I know, you know, I know what you're saying, but at the same time, you know, if I'm home, like when I tried to like work at home on a Saturday with the kids home, you know, I'd write seven lines and then I'd pull it, you know, and you just get pulled away. Um, I was talking with uh, Alec Berg, one of my former writing partners, uh, or once and future writing partner, whatever you want to call him. Um, and he's told me something interesting that Mike Schur, who run, who, uh, did uh, parks and rec and a bunch of other shows told him, which was fascinating. And he's, what he said was, and I'm, I'm quoting was that there are three phases to a show. There's sort of the, the writing, the onset and the editing. And Mike's theory in life was that the only way you could have sort of a normal life and see your kids and whatnot is if you give up one of the three, if you can figure out a way to give up one of the three. Um, And what Alec, I know, did this year or this last season was he was writing and he edited and he was obviously there for run throughs and stuff, but he wasn't day to day on the set. For the moment, I don't know how to give up one of them. He also has the benefit of he and Mike Judge work together, so there's the sort of his co-creator, if you will. I, I I love my guys, I love everybody, but at the end of the day, I was on set for every shot, and I feel like I need to be there. I was I've done all the editing, I've brought people in to help me to look at things, whatever, and I appreciate. It. But I have been there. I've never been able to just go, you do that show and then I'll look at it. What happens when somebody else cuts a show is I end up having to go back in, look at the the, the editor's cut and see everything because we shoot long as a lot of shows do. You know, we shoot, we had a lot of shows in sort of the 40 plus minute, 45 minute, and we got to get them down to 28 minutes. And a lot of people's instinct in editing is always to cut a scene, to give yourself like a two minute chunk. And I am a big believer, and again, some of this is, comes from like working with Larry, both watching in the, the Seinfeld days, we weren't quite as long, but certainly the way we edit Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is 
just that sort of, you know, ding, 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 and you're taking 20 seconds out of every scene, and all of a sudden, that's how you get your minutes. Do you know what I mean? What are the, the non-essential, there's two sentences. What if there's one sentence, you know, and it's, it's a much more time-consuming process. But again, when I've gone in and looked at like, okay, here's a cut, it's just like, well, wait a second, where'd that story go? And I never want to, I want to get everything in and mush the sausage, which is how you, I think, certainly on Veep, on Curb, on Seinfeld how you get that speed, that density, that sort of, uh, I always liken it to like a, like a Billy Wilder one, two, three, that rat-tat-tat, which I would argue when you watch some of those shows that I have been involved with compared to other shows, and I'm not saying good or bad, but certainly faster. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. All right. I want to go way, 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 way back, way, yes. way, 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 back. Way, way, way back. We're going to go back to where you grew up, what your parents were like, sure. brothers and sisters, the socioeconomic background and how it was back then. And your first inspiration to be in this business, what was it? Um, well, I grew up in New York city. I grew up on, uh, the upper West side, 70th and West end, uh, the middle class. They don't, doesn't exist anymore, but that's, uh, that's what we were. I lived at Lincoln Towers. Lincoln Towers. I was 205, which is on 70th. Yeah. I was 165. 165? When I was born, we 160, lived 160, I think. Yeah, okay. 160. When I was born, we lived in 185. And then when my sister came along, they moved to 205. My folks are still there. My bedroom, I'm fond of saying, is still exactly as it was. It looks like it looks like like an ordinary people where the kid dies in the sailing accident and then the room is like a museum to the dead kid. That's my room right now. Even I can't though, yeah. believe you grew up where yeah. I had the fondest memories. Loved it. Yeah. So I grew up there. You know, um, my mom was, uh, she was a sort of a, she was a school teacher um, and then was just very active in my school. Uh, I went to a private school in New York called uh, Horace Mann, which uh, biggest claim to fame lately seems to be a lot of molestation cases, but uh I was not, uh, and uh, she was very active in the PTA, and oddly enough, when we were all graduated, myself and my, I have a sister who's about a year and a half younger, when we all graduated, my mom ended up working at my old high school, uh, sort of doing the PTA stuff, like, from the other side. Um, they just couldn't get rid of her. And my dad is a lawyer, you know, he does, like, trusts and estates and tax stuff, and, uh, you know, I, I guess for me, a lot of the inspiration was... Um, uh, my mom loves movies. My mom could like go to the movies like 24 hours a day. She used to take me to the movies. Um, when I got a hold of her like record collection from like my grandma's house, that's where I sort of first encountered like Mort Saul albums and uh, like Vaughn Mead's The First Family and that kind of stuff. For and those I, of you who don't know, um, Mort Saul was a Jewish centric <laughs> Mort Saul was comedian. a Jew what <laughs> very Jewish centric kind of comedy always I don't know the other person you mentioned though uh, First Family was a famous like 1960 or 61 parody album of the Kennedy family um and some Tom Lehrer stuff he was like a lot of like funny piano tunes and whatnot but I, like I said uh, you know she like sort of took me to the movies from an early age you know back in the day when there were revival theaters in our neighborhood, there was a one up there on like 66th and Broadway. I can't remember its name. They would do like Hitchcock uh, festivals and stuff like that. And my mom took me. Um, so I was always really interested in like movies and TV. I was always big on comedy and kind of very into like, you know, comedy albums, uh, the Steve Martin albums, the King Todd album. 
Uh, I can remember finding the Woody Allen stand-up comic on tape. And, you know, and I would sort of search these things out back when there were record stores and things in New York City. I remember early trips to London. Um, you, They used to, it was something that only I ever saw in London, which was they would have cassette tapes of some of the really good British comedy. So you could buy like Blackadder on a cassette tape and listen to it before there was that you, before you could buy like DVDs or obviously VHSs or whatever. So cassette tapes, things like that. So I was very into comedy. I was really into Saturday Night Live. I had, uh, from very early on in like 19, I don't know, 77 or so, they published this large green, like a fake script book. It was like script pages with notations on it. And I still have this thing at my folks place in my museum. Um, uh, so all these things were just really important to me, but I'm also the first to admit I had no sense or idea that this is anything you could do for a living. You know what I mean? It seemed like elves did it. I was not, for all my reading, for all my, you know, and I would read stuff and whatever, the notion of the writer's life, I guess that was the part I sort of missed. So young me going to Horace Mann, sort of thinking, oh, I'll be a lawyer or something. I guess my great, my great sort of idea was, well, maybe I could be like an entertainment lawyer. You know what I mean? That was like, I thought, I just, it didn't, it didn't, I, I just couldn't process that you were, that people were comedy writers. It didn't exist for me. Um, and, uh, and it really, I guess that sort of changed when I got to college, wow. Harvard, Harvard Lampoon, I joined, which obviously. So you got into Harvard. Got into Harvard. I was, you know, I was president of the student council and all that kind of stuff and got into Harvard and got there and sort of discovered the Harvard Lampoon and then sort of started to piece together this notion of the Harvard Lampoon giving rise to the National Lampoon and all of that kind of stuff. Started... Now, can you tell our audience oh, about sure. the Harvard Lampoon? Because a lot of us don't know the inner sure. workings of what the organization is at Harvard and what it's like. And Ostensibly, what it is a humor magazine that obviously is published and it is the, and people, I guess, don't even really know National Lampoon anymore, but it did give rise in the 70s to the National Lampoon, which at the time was a giant phenomena, I guess. Which is yeah. odd because for those of you who don't really follow it, Harvard Lampoon, obviously the smartest writers in the world, National Lampoon, the writing is the lowest common denominator kind well, of movies where there's not, even in the greatest movies of all time they did, it relied on a lot of sight gags and a lot it of sex did, jokes. It definitely did, but they were sort of smart sex jokes, I would argue, uh, to me. Okay, well, yeah. we'll analyze Van Wilder well, later. Well, Van Wilder, but I'm talking, I'm pre, pre I'm talking 70s Harvard Lamp, uh, oh. 70s National Oh, okay. Yeah, I, right. no responsibility for the 80s. I'm talking about the original Harvard Lampoon guys like Doug Kenny and Henry Beard, who did the original magazine, the first like four or five years of it. And then did like Animal House and Caddyshack and that stuff. So, and that to me is smart, stupid, I guess. Yeah. You know, it takes a very smart guy to write something so stupid. Do you respect smart, stupid as much as you respect smart, smart? Like yes. in other words, I will take so Arrested Development you'll take and you'll also take yes. a show that's just... Smart, stupid, I am fine with. The thing that drives me the craziest in life is just predictability. If I can sit there and say it to you before it happens or tell you what's going to happen before it happens, and obviously there's going to be a little of that, but if you can't... If I, what, what gets me excited is being surprised, like in terms of comedy, and some of that is because it's what I do. So if I feel like if I'm surprised with a great... Uh, I was watching... Again, not to talk about Silicon Valley and Alec Berg, 
uh, last night, the other night's episode I was just watching, and it has this very silly runner where the Chinese kid living in the house is making these very stupid crank calls to TJ Miller, just doing the old classic sort of like, you know, is your refrigerator running kind of really bad classic stuff. But it was so stupid. It was funny. And uh, it, it was different for me in a good way. Uh, so yeah, I smart, stupid is fun. I just, I have problems with stupid, stupid. I have problems with shit for shit's sake, I guess. Penises for penises sake, I, I, I guess is what I have my trouble and with. And predictability. So you yes. don't go see any romantic comedy movies, apparently. You know they're going to get together, but if the journey can be interesting. But I will say, and it is funny, and one of the things that has changed me is I used to love going to the movies. I could go see a good movie and I could go see bad movies. I mean, and it was also a time, I think, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, obviously in like the late 70s and 80s when I was kind of going to the movies with my friends, when there were just more movies. There were new movies every weekend and multiple ones. And you could go see a movie like, uh, what was that? There's, you know, it's like bestseller with James Woods as the hitman and Brian Dennehy as the cop who's a writer. You know, and like, like shit like that would come out. And that would be a major studio release. You know what I mean? They don't make movies like that anymore. You know what I mean? So there were lots of movies and I loved going and I... Uh, among my friends, they still make fun of me for dragging them to like uh, the Rodney Dangerfield movie Ladybugs, where he co <laughs> coaches the girls' soccer team but makes the son of his girlfriend, who's great at soccer, dress up as a girl. And it's an awful movie, but I loved the act of going. And I will say, unfortunately, having now been in the industry, whatever I've been in since, I guess, somewhat formally since 92. I don't have the patience for it anymore. I don't know if it's a time thing. I don't know if it's a why that movie and not my movie thing, I think is probably part of it too. But I, I don't, I, I still love a good movie and I will watch bad movies at home while I'm doing stuff. I am, uh, I, I watch TV and movies the way people, I guess, listen to music. Like my TV is always on when I'm working. Sometimes it's just sitcoms. I, I, but I, I like the TV on. It helps sort of, I don't know, keep me a little busy in my mind while I'm working. So I will watch things there. But going to a theater to see a bad movie, I guess that gets me angry now. And again, I guess it is ultimately the why not my movie, why this movie thing. So go back to the yeah. Harvard Lampoon. Oh, so Harvard Lampoon. Um, so it is a magazine that you have to... Um, uh, I guess, do pieces, write pieces to get accepted in. So it is a student organization. You have to be elected to it. You have to demonstrate a skill either in writing. There's an art board. You can be an artist on the Harvard Lampoon. You can also be a business person. You can sell ads for the magazine. And it has a headquarters right there in Cambridge at Harvard, which is an old mock Flemish castle, which is a pretty cool headquarters that was partially financed by William Randolph Hearst and filled with all these really cool things. And so what's, I guess what was interesting for me getting there was sort of seeing the lampoon, realizing you could be a part of it. And that was when I started to become aware of guys like, you know, as this, like, for example, when the Simpsons started, where it was sort of like, oh my God, all of those guys like Conan and Mike Reese and Gamel and Prost, they were all lampoon guys. And so it was that sort of realization of, oh my God, uh, Jim Downey was a lampoon guy on Saturday Night Live. So all of a sudden the, the, I started to sort of put the pieces together in a way that I, I didn't, hadn't previously about the writer's life, if you will, or that you can be a writer for these things. 
And so I became very obsessed with getting on the Lampoon. And then once I got on the Lampoon, all of a sudden there was this idea that, well, maybe this could be a job, that this is what I was truly, I guess, stupid word, but happy doing and wanted to do. And I think for people that do know the Lampoon, both the good and the, you know, there are definitely, I'm sure people that complain about it, like why, why, you know, what is, why, why would you hire that Lampoon guy? And by the way, I got a bunch of Lampoon guys on my staff. That's, you know, and the reason I will simply say is for me, what I, what I think is great about it is if you're a new writer just out of wherever and you come to work on a show in LA and it's your first job, you're going to go through a phase of pitching crappy stuff. You just are. You're going to pitch obvious stuff. You're going to pitch hacky stuff. You're going to just pitch things because why wouldn't you? With The Lampoon, it's almost like a minor leagues, if you will. And you will get a lot of that obvious hacky stuff beaten out of you, whether it's a just a mono a mono of trying to be funnier at a party than that other guy from the lampoon or writing stuff and having people make fun of you for writing it as only it's almost you know it's not a fraternity but in that sort of like there's a certain aggressive comedyness to it of like that's a shitty fucking joke i'm not putting that in the magazine and it does it beats a lot of that stuff out of you and i do think and it's you know it's probably why like people that come out of like you know like like improv stuff like like a lot of improv classes They've had a lot of that stuff kicked out of them. And so I don't think Lampoon is better than any place else, but I think the notion of, I guess, earlier training, if you will, is a very good thing. And I think there is a, there is a house sensibility of sort of the joke no one has thought of that I think does come out of that building in a really good way. And I think you've seen it in a lot of those names we mentioned, um, and so I guess that's what, you know, when I think of what the lamp, why the lampoon is something good, that's the good stuff um, for me. So that was sort of where I sort of both sort of started to get really into it and was writing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, like I said, it sort of made sense to me where it was like, wow, my folks sent me to Harvard, but I'm not going to classes and this is what I want to do with my life. And then, and this is where people might yell unfair advantage the summer between my junior and senior year, the Lampoon always does these sort of summer projects. And the summer project that year was um, Comedy Central had just been formed. The Comedy Channel and Ha, one owned by Viacom and one owned by Time Warner, were each losing like $10 million a year. And they decided to join forces and create Comedy Central and only lose $5 million each. <laughs> um, and they had decided to do a Harvard Lampoon thing. And we did this special called MTV, Give Me Back My Life. And it was a fake documentary uh, celebrating MTV's 10th anniversary with people pretending to be executives and fake music videos and whatnot. And it's kind of wonderfully awful. And there's just, we, you know, you learn by making so many of these mistakes. But it was an amazing first experience um, it was, uh, a bunch of us worked on it at first and then, uh, Schaefer Berg and I went down to New York and slept on my floor. Wait, I mean, those two guys were with yeah, They you were a year ahead of me at school. That's where we but met. That's where you met for the first time. Yes, exactly. We all lived in the same dorm. We all lived in Winthrop house and we were all in the lampoon together. Yeah. And you're still friends. Yes. Most of the time. Jeff does the league. 
Jeff Schaefer do the does the yep. league. That's right. Okay. Yep, he does the league. And, um, and Alex doing Silicon Valley, and we did Seinfeld together. We did Curb. We did Euro Trip. We did The Dictator. We did a bunch of stuff together, and still do. Yeah. Again, for the thousandth time in this podcast, relationships, everybody. Yeah, I mean, we met early on, and uh, just you know made each other laugh and uh you know i i love doing stuff alone but i think when the three of us are together and kind of cracking we really i think you know i i think you know again i can't speak always for the final movie but i i certainly would defend some of our scripts to the 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 end of the earth i would i would i would argue how good they are i'm sorry you know and i don't it's i don't mean to brag they're good scripts i don't fucking care they just are but yeah, we met all the way back then. So that was and, the oh, first project you did together. Yes. What was your role? Just writers? We were basically sort of the writers and the on-set guys. And there was somebody running the show. There was people running the show and they and those people and it was interesting because they were not great comedy people and if you watch the show now, it's this hilarious thing where it's a documentary most of the documentary footage is done on video when video was not high def yet and everything looks really fake. And then oddly, which, and all of that should have been on film. And then oddly, there's a spring break sequence that's on film for no reason, which should have been on the shitty video. And so there were a lot of problems with it. And yet we, I, we learned so much that summer from the problems. And then going one step beyond that, um, one of the guys who was like a consultant on it was a guy, uh, Billy Kimball, who uh, is working on Veep with me right now. And then another consultant for the show was Al Franken. So that's when I first met Al and Al really became my mentor so that the following year, I guess when I graduated, uh, I got a call from, uh, I can't remember if I got a call from Billy or one of the executives, but Billy was exec producing comedy coverage of the Democratic and Republican conventions with Al as the host. And Jeff and Alec had already moved to LA. They were a year older than me and they kind of went off to LA. And so I was hired I was graduating and I got hired down there and I basically graduated on a Friday, drove down back to New York and went to work on Monday at Comedy Central with Billy and Al and, um, and just the next thing I knew, and again, me, the Saturday Night Live fan, and at that point I had devoured like the Hill and Weingard book and all this kind of stuff and I'm sitting in an office with Al Franken and we're writing sketches together and it was, it was incredible and we became just really great friends. But and you're writing sketches with Al. For this uh, comedy coverage of the Democratic and Republican oh, Convention. It. That was my job because it was like so, it was like filling two hours a night. So we would do these little ske interstitial sketches. He would do things. the interstitials yes. on Comedy Central. Exactly, exactly. So he had left SNL. No, it was his summer gig because SNL doesn't work during the summer. And so he was the host, but Al was starting to get into the pol politics and stuff. Obviously he, I don't think he necessarily was thinking of being a senator, but I do know probably at that time he wanted to really, he would have loved to have hosted a Weekend Update. That was what, what he was really looking to do. And so this was sort of an opportunity to do sort of a news, sort of a, a comedy news hosting gig outside of SNL, where I think he was probably also trying to show everybody that he could do it. And it was really interesting. It was Clinton, you know, it was Clinton versus Bush. And we had to fill time and we were doing all these really fun, silly things with a political bent. And at the end of the summer, um, you know, it probably one of the, you know, top whatever moments of my life, along with, you know, birth of kids and all that kind of stuff, Al said to me, uh, I want to I wanna talk to Lauren and Jim Downey and I want to get you over to SNL. And next thing I knew, I was meeting with Jim Downey. And the next thing I knew, uh, 
I, I was working at SNL. I was I was still 21 years old. I mean, it was madness. <laughs> I mean, it was August, it was August of August of 1992. So I was about two months before my 22nd birthday, and I was working at SNL. <laughs> you got hired without meeting with Lauren. I think I did. I think I met Jim and got hired. Yeah, just as a writer, because obviously no no desire to perform or anything like that. And at some point, I did obviously meet Lauren. But yeah. And for those of you who don't know, the minimum wage for a writer on a late night show, even 20 years ago, was probably between two and three thousand dollars. I feel like it was like close to 3000 I think the, the way they used to negotiate it was always, uh, it was minimum plus 10% to cover the agent. You had an agent of 21. Yeah. I had an agent, uh, a, 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 a guy that we, that Jeff and Alex sort of knew was a guy named Chris Moore. I don't know if you know Chris, obviously, who's gone on to Project Greenlight and yes, all that kind of, of stuff. And Chris at the time was an agent at Intertalent. And so he kind of was sort of like, pocket represented doesn't us. exist anymore yeah exactly and then uh and then hooked me up with another like sort of a more formal tv agent at the time named scott arnovitz he's now i believe a packaging agent ah, okay who packages television shows okay, i haven't seen him in years um yeah. and uh but that was through chris and then i think internet intertalent eventually joined with icm yeah. and then i see though and then the guys i was with at icm sort of at some point or another, I sort of moved over at ICM to Ari Emanuel, who was my agent, and then they snuck out in the middle of the night and formed Endeavor, and I went with them, so I was one of the original Endeavor clients, and then Endeavor became William Morris Endeavor, whatever. So yeah, so that was sort of my representation path. But agents and managers used to sort of circle the lampoon a little bit, in, a, in I guess, a good way, but uh, it was, you know, they were... Every year there were a couple of us going into television. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Were you the youngest person ever to work as a writer on Saturday Night Live? I mean, I 21 Eddie years old. was like 17 or something. No, so. but he was a performer. Right, but I think he wrote two. I'm no, sure I'm not... there were other ones. I know like Simon Rich was really young, probably right around the same. But I mean, that's amazing. It was, I, yes, I worked that summer at Comedy Central, but it was really sort of my first real job job, it felt like, out of school. Yeah. So how do you learn how to navigate when everybody you're working with is more experienced than you, is older than you, and has more respect in the business than you? How did you navigate well, that and that is, I think, well? the good and the bad of Saturday Night Live. It's kind of like the rocks that the waves hit. And obviously you told your story before about uh, Jim Brewer, who I only met like once or twice. He was sort of, I left in 95, they cleaned house, and that's when Jim and Will and all those guys came in. So I sort of have a, hi, how are you relationship. But the, my cast, my first year was insane. My first year, which was the election year, was still Dana, Phil, Mike Myers. I mean, it was, a, you know, it was like a murderer's row. It was like you were joining the 27 Yankees. Sandler was, was there, too. Sandler, I believe... My first year either was still a featured player. He wasn't even Sandler yet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It oh, was yeah. like, it was right as it was he, that first year I was there, he had already sort of had some hits with opera man and stuff, but then really started to, you know, do a lot more kind of a thing. And Spade was also Spade, there. Farley, Schneider, Kevin Nealon was doing update. update. Yes. Okay. Kevin was doing the update. Um, and you know, and you know, your, your gym story, you know, I don't know. I, I'll tell you a story that I'm not sure anyone's ever told. I don't know if he'll be annoyed by it or not, but I'll tell you when we were there, um, vaguely similar thing, which was, um, 
in my, I think it was my third year, Norm got update. And, I, and I'll preface this story with Norm is fucking hilarious. He's crazy, but he's fucking hilarious. I think he's just brilliant. And he's fearless, which I love. I mean, he used to go out there with jokes that the audience either would gasp at or moan at or just not get, and he would stare them down. And I, I, I appreciate that to no end. So I, I, I can't compliment him enough. But in a world where I do believe everyone watching the show assumes that every creator is making up whatever they're saying and that there are no writers, he did an interview somewhere where he more or less said something along the way of like that he wrote all the update jokes. That's basically what he sort of said in an interview. And a lot of us had taken a lot of pride in Norm's update because a lot of the jokes that he was sort of becoming known for, for example, like he used to do a runner of like, uh, that's blankly blank, that's from the latest issue of duh, of like Duh Magazine. It would be something like that. That's a joke, for example, that Steve Lookner, uh, another good friend of mine, he created that joke. And I don't know, Norm's doing that to this day, that joke, I think. It's a great joke. So we had really taken a lot of pride in Norm's update and working on it. And it pissed the hell out of us when we saw that interview. And we, a lot of us just stopped writing because we are petulant writers. And how do I put this again? Is Which is, as a writer, again, I'm not looking to be famous. Let me start with that. I'm not looking to be on the stage. But I would like to be acknowledged for being the writer. And in a world where, as I said, I think the average human being doesn't even know that writers exist, even if like Norm had said, here is the list of people writing all of Update, it wouldn't have mattered, they still think he was doing it. So in that world, why bother saying it? You know what I'm saying? So one of the things like, for example, I will say this, and again, go to my grave saying it, Jerry Seinfeld used to just, like, we'd be at the People's Choice Awards, and he'd drag us writers up on stage at the People's Choice Awards. And believe me, I think that's the last thing that the People's Choice Awards people wanted to see. They wanted Jerry, but believe me, they didn't want to see us, you know, 10 or 12 people. But goddamn, Jerry was just great about, about that thing. Larry, you know, and again, another, you know, Larry you know, does these interviews and whatever, whatever. And it's always nice. I'll get a call or something and someone will go, Hey, Larry mentioned you on something. And that's not why I do it, but it's just nice that he goes to the trouble of doing it. You know what I mean? He doesn't have to, and he does. And I guess those are great things. Um, anyway, I, the Norm McDonald story, we all did stop sort of writing. And then I remember after I left the show, I would, I sent a joke in once or twice, but I wanted like the hundred dollars that they were paying, uh, <laughs> that they were paying writers. I had a joke that I loved, which was, uh, I think it was the band. It was like better than Ezra had like the number one song. And I sent in a very stupid, smart, stupid joke. I thought, which Norm would kill, which was like this summer, the, you know, it was for like the September show. And it was like, blah, 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 blah. Number one song, better than Ezra. Number two, Ezra. <laughs> Um, but I wanted, I wanted the $125 for the joke. I don't think I ever got paid, but anyway, I wanted the money, but, uh, but you know, we were really into that norm thing. And also cause Jim Downey was sort of had taken a real hand in producing the norm segments, which kind of killed him later. But so, you know, and for, you know, and work Jim is uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Jim is just. He's been on the show since the very beginning. I think he's yeah, never. He's, I think he got there the second year of the show and. I don't want to throw these terms around, but I would, you know, certainly put him in the argument for funniest human being on planet Earth. He's so responsible for so many things you have no idea he's even responsible for. And would just assume be sort of tracing sort of historic genealogy in like the Cooperstown library kind of a thing. But just just 
just a brilliant guy, especially with the political stuff. And so I got to do a lot of, when I first got to the show, I worked a lot with Al and then with Al and Jim on political stuff, um, which uh, was just sort of this amazing thing of like, again, you know, I, those, you know, Al brought me into the show, but I always feel like Jim and Al taught me to write. I've always sort of felt that way. Tell our audience about the first time that Lorne Michaels spent any significant moments talking to you well, and what he shared with you that impacted you for your entire career. Well, I'm not sure anything impacted me in the first time. I mean, I got hired there and as you said, I hadn't met Lauren. And so it was kind of a... Normally, yeah. that's the kiss of death because you want the guy who wears the ring to bless you. Right. You want him to sort of be responsible for you. Um, and so it was this very weird thing, like where I would pass him. In the, and again, you're, I'm, a, I'm a young writer and this is my be all end all job, but I'm there on a 13 week contract. And I'm walking by Lauren Michaels and he doesn't say a word to me, you know, so it's just like, yeah. Um, I think the first thing he ever said to me was um, on something, um, and we can kind of get back, you were asking me how you navigate, but we should get back to that at some point. And I think it was one of my early sketches. Um, and I, he passed by me at some point and said something to me like, are you having an okay time? But I just, I read so many different things into it. Like, like, am I having an okay time? Or like, is he saying it like, are you having an okay time? Like you entitled asshole or like who I didn't want to hire. You know, you just read so much into it. And I got picked up after my 13 weeks and, you know, I had a nice back end of the season. And I remember being at the party, the end of the year, big party, which they always have outside at the skating rink, which is at that point, not a skating rink anymore. And I remember it like, you know, whatever, somehow like two in the morning, he sort of said something to me along the lines of, see you next year. And I finally relaxed. That was, uh, that was the fun. That was the moment where I kind of exhaled where Lauren said, see you next year. And I had an okay first year. Um, but it was just eggshells, as you say. When I got there, which is the tail end of when you were leaving, I remember you having a great relationship with Lauren that third year, like where Absolutely. it was like the relationship was unlike those that you saw where there was no filter and there was no walking on eggshells. You just would hang out and you'd walk with him a lot and he would talk with you and he almost felt like a kindred father figure well, spirit. To you. I don't know about that. You know, you never, I can't go that far. I did, you know, in that sort of the road not taken and it was very difficult for me to leave the show um, when I left. I, I wasn't happy. It, I felt like the show wasn't good. I don't think people would disagree with that at that point. That was the time when was the, the article seventh, came out that said yeah, Saturday Night Dead. Right. Well, it was one of the many Saturday Night Dead articles, but yes, it was the Farley New York Magazine cover. Was and Janine it, Garofalo yes, part of that Yes, it was the 17-person cast with Janine and Chris Elliott and Mark McKinney, and it was just kind of a mess. And you know, the following year, Lauren cleaned house of the cast, and that's when he started to find a lot of these other people and whatnot. And I, you know, you have to, you always think the road not taken. I would, I think I would have really enjoyed that next step. And I, I feel like based on what I was doing that final year of the show, where I was helping to put together specials and taking like producing, I think I got a producing credit on a Mother's Day special or something. I can't even remember. I felt like I was being poised for more, I guess, that they were, you know what I mean? Like that, that had I been back, there would have been more. Um, 
But, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting, you know, with Lauren, um, like I said, I, I was very on edge until he said sort of that thing. And then that summer I was sort of convinced by somebody to ask for his Yankee tickets, which he has wonderful Yankee seats. He's always had. And during the summer is sometimes away and doesn't use them. And, you know, it's funny you told that your letter story. I wrote, uh, I got, I took the Yankee seats and they were wonderful and I had a great time. Uh, and I wrote a thank you note because that's what my parents, that's how I was raised. You write a thank you note and you say thank you because I was given at the time, you know, these incredible box seats. And I was given, I think, four of them and it was incredible. And I gave, I, I, I wrote the note and then it was sort of, soon told to me sort of whatever that I was welcome for the seats, you know, if they were available whenever. And every time I, it sounds silly, but every time I took the seats, I wrote a note and said, thank you. And maybe mentioned something about the game. And I kind of remember when the season sort of started up, that my, which would have been my second season. It, it sounds so silly, but then I, there were hockey tickets and different things of that nature. And I, I remember getting like, um, a, you know, a wonderful, um, Lauren had sort of found out from people how into movies I was. I remember getting, uh, from like a really great, like criterion laser disc set from him with a couple of tickets. And, and it's sort of, I don't know, I can't say it was because I wrote a thank you note, but I certainly probably didn't hurt. It is because of that, because people appreciate things. And when you're somebody like Lauren who works with, let's just say, 50 immediate people and probably another 50 or 60 or 70 on the show, he could count the thank you notes he got on half a hand. I, I will, you know, we were talking about navigating and I don't mean this specifically about Lauren, but you know, when I was at the show and you know, early on, you know, you're trying to get stuff on and we can talk about that more if you want to. Um, I just got in the habit. I mean, I don't want to say it was a habit. I wasn't trying to do it to get anybody to like me or whatever, but I did try and make sure that like when the show ended and I had something on, I would go and say hi and thank you to Davey Wilson, who was the director at the time and just kind of pop in there before he left that, you know, at like 1am because he often didn't go to the parties. And I just always wanted to sort of say, hey, thank you and say thank you to the various departments that had helped me with my sketch. And again, I guess it was sort of in a world where no one is thanking them. I just wanted them to know that I certainly appreciated the sketch happening because for me, that sketch was my life. If I got a sketch on, that was a huge thing. So it made the perfect sense in the world just to thank the people that helped make my thing possible because that thing was what was keeping me on the show. Um, and, you know, in those early days, it was just, as you put it, you're dying to get something on. And so I, I often went the other way, which was to say, well, everyone's writing for them. Who's light this week? So, for example, one of the first things I think I ever got on was uh, Melanie Hutzel had done a Tory Spelling sort of impression um, in a 90210 sketch the year before I got there. And so I wrote this little thing. It was sort of a Tory Spelling talk show. Every episode took place in a different room of Aaron Spelling's 116-room mansion. And... I remember the one joke I loved was her defending her audition for her father that she had done it under a different name. That was a real story <laughs> that she had done it under, she had auditioned under an assumed name. And our joke of course was that she had auditioned under the name, uh, Susan Spelling. It was the reverse. <laughs> anyway. Um, 
And those were some of the first things that I got on. Um, some of the first stuff I got on were commercial parodies because I, it was a chance to sort of work in, you know, sort of in the isolation, not of the competition for the show. The commercial unit was sort of its own thing. So again, it was sort of taking a lay of the land and just trying to figure out how am I going to get stuff on? Well, these are ways I can get stuff on. Um, and then when I didn't have something on, I made myself as useful as possible, whether it was uh, I remember watching early, like not early, early on, but eventually sometimes like if Mike Myers got a sketch on, maybe I'd be the writer that would watch the sketch from the booth for him and sort of process the notes. And if I didn't get anything on and I wasn't watching something, then I wrote update jokes. I mean, I, I remember, you know, killing myself to write update jokes and, you know, and obviously, and then, and then you're living and dying on single jokes, of course. And I remember one that I wanted in so badly. I think they might've tried it at dress, but didn't make air. There was a, Marge Schott was the owner of the Cincinnati Reds. She was she a racist. Was, she was a racist. She was like a Nazi. She had a big dog named Schotzi, and they had found like Nazi memorabilia, and she didn't like black people. It was She was not, and they sort of pushed her out eventually, but uh, there had been some trade. I don't know if it was the, I'm a big Yankee fan. I don't know if it was the Paul O'Neill trade, but maybe it was the Paul O'Neill trade, who was uh, one, one of my favorite Yankees. Anyway, not, not the point of the story. Um, and I had written a joke where it was uh, that they had done this trade with the Yankees had done this trade with Marge Schott. It was a triangle trade joke. It was like, blah, blah, blah for Paul Ryan, who was sent to the West Indies for rum and slaves. And that was the joke because she was a Nazi. And I think it went, it just didn't land for the audience. But I loved that joke. But again, it just was sort of, how do I get anything on the show? How do I get anything on the show? And it's a pro it was a process. But, uh, you know, along the way, you know, my, I guess my fond memories were sort of, you know, one of the great things about SNL is that sort of make or break, which is you are the mini producer of your sketch. And so the skills that I feel like I learned to talk, I'm not talking about the thank you stuff. I'm talking about talking to a director about blocking, talking to a set designer about what the set you want, talking to a costume designer, where again, I think you get a lot of people who come onto a sitcom out here in a room and rise up the ladder somewhat quickly or not, you know, and find themselves whatever, and have never edited, have never spoken to the director, have never whatever. And that's where Saturday Night Live is just, whether you have a good or bad experience there, I still would argue that some of that training is just invaluable. Whether you want to embrace it or not, that's up to you. But I mean, it was an amazing first job. And like I said, I do think about the road not taken a little bit, but I, I left for Seinfeld, which was hard to argue with. So can't complain <laughs> yeah. about that. But Lauren and I, just to, to loop back to that, you know, it, when I came back for my second year, there was a lot of changeover. Dana had left. Some of the senior writers like Bonnie and Terry Turner had left. And so all of a sudden, some of us that didn't have that many years of experience under our belt were more senior. And, you know, my time at the show, there was good stuff and frustration stuff. I always felt like I was the guy, and again, this was my own feeling, that I was the guy that was willing to write the monologue when no one was willing to write the monologue. But you're never going to get a lot of credit, and that monologue is never going to or rarely going to be anybody's favorite sketch. Do you know what I mean? And I did feel like there were other writers who were like working on Lauren movies and stuff, and that they were sort of, you know, again, this is these are the feelings at SNL that you all have, that I felt like we're getting sort of more favored nation treatment and we're not working as hard as some of the others of us, but this is just how you feel when you're there. Um, but, and I just always felt like I'm going to write this. I'm going to write, I'm going to make sure there's a monologue. I'm going to make sure there's this or whatever. And, uh, 
you know, and that's why that's the love and the hate of the place. And I do think um, as the show went forward and some of those guys like the Danas and the Phils who could do anything in the world left, we had a very often funny, but often one note cast. And that was sort of the problems in those back end. And yet also at the same time, really ballooned and enlarged up so that guys like Jay Moore, who I always felt was a real natural on camera, just couldn't fight his way through and stuff like that. So it's, it's a, it's a wonderful, horrible place. I mean, it's one of those things where I was so ready to leave when I left and yet I am so glad I went there. Do you know what I mean? I, that's the easiest way I can explain it. So tell our audience the feeling that you have when you're still in your early 20s. You're on one of the greatest, most respected shows in history. And you get an offer to work on Seinfeld. Well, the Seinfeld thing was sort of a, a little bit of a funny thing, um, which was Jeff and Alec. Now we're back to Schaefer and Berg. They're living in L.A. And my third year of SNL, they, get hi they got hired at Seinfeld. And now I'm hating SNL so much that what I'm doing is on the breaks, especially in the spring where you would do two shows on and two shows off, I'm going to LA and I don't have a driver's license. So I'm staying with Schaefer and Berg and I'm just going with them to Seinfeld working. I go to Seinfeld with them to work and I sit in their office and then I kind of come out for lunch and I slowly got to know all the writers and Larry and Jerry. And I was like the, I was like the, the special guest, the lunch guest, like, because a lot of them had had SNL experiences. Larry had worked there. Uh, Carol Leifer was there, whatever. And it was one of those things where all of a sudden Peter Melman, who we mentioned, I realized I knew his brother in New York. And, you know, you start to find these things. So I'm kind of hanging out at the offices and, uh, you know, which was a very funny thing. And I had been thinking about leaving anyway, but I wasn't even thinking about, I mean, I would have, I was working on Seinfeld stuff to give to Larry. Um, the way you would get a job was you had to give them idealists and stuff. And uh, I was working on stuff and then somewhere in there, Pulse, and, and then, oh God, that's right. Um, Larry was, I think, in a big renegotiation and was possibly even, I think, leaving the show. That was the rumor at the time. Um, and I remember Larry showing up at the uh, final show of SNL that year who may have, I think Heather Locklear was the host. Um, and he was heading to Europe, but it stopped in New York and came to the show and basically said, uh, I'm coming back to Seinfeld, send me ideas. And I think he had talked to Jim Downey about me also. And then I was working on ideas and I got a phone call like a week later and he hired me. He said, just, you're hired, come to Seinfeld. Before you sent the ideas. Before I sent the ideas. But in my defense... When I was pitching out um, my first show, I, I, whatever idea I went like, blah, 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 blah. Um, what was in that first show? Uh, the pool, it was the pool guy. So it was the pool guy. Oh, I, I don't remember which part it was. It was, it, what's the Kramer story in the pool guy? Oh, Kramer's doing, uh, he's the movie phone. He gets the new phone number and he's the movie phone, whatever. Larry was like, would this have been on your idea sheet? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, good. So that was good. But I had spent, at that point, I had spent a lot of time with them. And I think they had sort of known me, whereas most people are normally anonymously applying for jobs. What happens when you go to Jim Downey and Lorne and say, I know you guys 
bet on me as a young guy, and I know you've given me a job for three years and supported me here, but see ya. How do you handle that? Well, you know, again, I, you know, I, I'm a, I guess, believer in the sort of the personal, and uh, I, 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 if I remember correctly, Lauren was at Paramount, and we walked together. I took a walk with him at Paramount, and I, and I told him I was moving on, and I, and I think, and he was really great about it. I mean, I always remember him being great about it. I think he understood that the show was in flux, and regardless of whether he was thinking of other things for me or not, which again, I'll never really know. I think he knew that the show in its current form wasn't working. I don't think he, no one was blaming me or anything like that, but I think it was a t an okay time to leave because there were perhaps bigger fish to fry. So it, it was, but again, you do it in person. I, again, I'm just a big believer in that. Um, so we, 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 we walked, we strolled and we chatted and, uh, and it couldn't have been better. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think I mentioned going back with Julia, but I went back with Jerry when Jerry hosted, when SNL ended in like, uh, I guess I would have been 98 when Seinfeld ended. Sorry. Jerry hosted the, I think it was the season premiere right after the, the big first anniversary show. And I was back there with Jerry and it was, and that was really the first time I had been back, back again, sort of like writing for the week. And much like this time with Julia, everybody, but Lauren in particular, could not have been more just gracious and welcoming. And it was that sense of like, you're the grad from the school and they're happy to have you back like a, like a beloved alum or something. So it was, it's always been very nice. I've always been very sort of proud of that ability to sort of go back or whatever. And for example, on our staff this year, during the summer months, we have one, an SNL writer who then leaves to go back to SNL, a guy named Eric Kenward. And it's worked out great. I think part of what makes it work is that, you know, I'm a known quantity to Lorne. You know, we all know each other. We all like each other and whatever in a good way. So it's just, it's a, it's a relationship that I certainly value. So, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's sort of nice. That's, I guess, the good news. <laughs> awesome. All right. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name sure. or something and just say the first yeah, thing yeah. that comes to mind. It could be one word. It could be a sentence. It sure. could be a story. It could be anything. Sasha Baron Cohen. <sighs> Frustrating. He is absolutely brilliant, but I think he gets in his own, he gets in his own way. I think sometimes, I think there were iterations. Uh, early on, I had the pleasure of, I got, uh, Larry Charles was a uh, Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm guy who obviously directed uh, Borat. And um, I remember seeing, you know, the early versions of the Ali G show and seeing, the, you know, the Borat character and whatever and just loving it. Uh, heard Larry was doing this movie, got invited to an early screening, which was not 100% locked and was certainly longer than the movie that it was originally. And it was just fantastic and incredible. And somewhere in there, and it, you know, just proud to be there. And somewhere along the way, they were looking for a new ending for the movie. And Elsie uh, invited uh, me, Jeff, and Alec in, and we sat with Sasha and his guys and uh we pitched out the uh the idea the uh the original ending of the movie uh was he gets to LA to find Pamela Anderson 
and gets to like a beach wedding. Did you, I, I don't know if you ever saw any of these early versions. There was a wedding and he thinks she's getting married, but she's not getting married. Her dog is getting married. It was this LA dog ceremony. And he sort of, I think, sing, sings like a love song or something and ultimately gets tackled. The tackling was funny. The rest of it wasn't particularly working um, to, to my eyes. And I think that was what the feedback they, they were getting was, this is a brilliant movie, the end doesn't exactly work. And so in this sort of session that we were invited to, we uh, you know, pitched out a bunch of different things, but ultimately came up with, uh, Jeff Alec and I came up with the notion of an autograph signing where he goes and presents her with all these gifts and then tries to throw the rape bag sort of over her. And it was really wonderful and really exciting that they did it and it worked and it was so good. And I, I'm very proud of that. And we get a little thank you at the end of that movie. We're there at the very end, which was nice. And, uh, and off of that, we started sort of popping in on some of Sasha's other movies, usually doing like, you know, like a week here and a week there. And he got, we, we rewrote another movie for him and things like that. It was all wonderful. Um, the Dictator was something that we sort of worked on with Sasha and sold. It was this original idea. Um, really happy with it. But, you know, when I look back, I guess I would just argue that I, I, I guess the, the, you know, there's a lot of funny new stuff, but there were just times where it was like just changing things. It felt like for change's sake. And I'm not particularly fond of the end, the end result. You know, I, you know, give me, you know, our, one of our earlier drafts or something. It just was very frustrating. And I, and, 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 and it just, I don't have any great answer. It just was frustrating. I, that's the easiest way I can say it. Michael Richards. Um, boy, you know, I was going to just honestly say funny and I feel bad for him sometimes, which I guess is something to say, which is again, one man's opinion. I, I, I've seen the tape of what he was, you know, or heard it or whatever you want to call it. The, the, the experience, the, the, the N word tape yes, at the laugh. The, yes, factory. exactly. And we, and again, I'm not looking to get into the use of the word or not, but when I hear it, when I see it, whatever you want to call it, I see a guy trying to answer a heckler doing a bad Southern character. Again, this is one man's opinion. I think he was trying to do a character and went somewhere perhaps with that character that shouldn't have gone. But when all of a sudden he's out there going, I have hate in my heart. I don't know. The Michael Richards I know didn't have hate in his heart. I, I, I just think, I don't know what went on with the advice he got there. And by the way, he did need to apologize for it, but I do think there was a way of apologizing and simply saying, I tried something and I screwed up and I went somewhere I shouldn't have gone on. But I don't, he's not a racist. I mean, I, I, I'll never understand it, I guess I can honestly say. He, his physicality is so good. He was so funny. And I know he's sort of, I guess, a little typecast as Kramer. But if you look back on some of his Friday stuff, Fridays was a sketch show that went on Friday nights concurrently with Saturday Night Live. It was a different production company with John Rourke and Michael Richards and a number of amazingly talented people. And he people. used to play that kid with the toy soldiers yeah. and so funny. I mean, I remember seeing him even like on an early St. Elsewhere episodes as like a documentary producer, filmmaker guy. And he was in that wonderful little Diane Keaton movie with uh, John Turturro called Unstrung Heroes, where he plays sort of a, it's John Turturro, raise, uh, he's widowed, raising his son with his, the help of his two brothers who are troubled and he's one of the troubled brothers and it's this just wonderful small little performance it's just lovely it's a it's a really heartbreaking performance actually and he, i just think he can do all these wonderful things and doesn't get a chance to 
Adam Sandler. Sandler's hilarious. Um, he's always been super nice to me when I run into him out here, which is always a wonderful thing. You know, I, I can't imagine that he reflects on it much. When we were back there at SNL, and again, this is a, you know, it's sort of a thing. He really wanted you to be like a writer for him. He was looking for people to write for him. And I was, I guess, just never a guy that wanted to just write for him or whoever. And by the way, I think you could probably have made a, I could have, you know, you could make a great career out of being a writer for Adam Sandler. I always loved, I leaned more towards the political stuff, which was not necessarily a lot of stuff that, you know, he was in as much. Um, but, you know, there were definitely times I remember him working on like uh, one of his early stand-up albums and we were all just hanging out and kibitzing on that a little bit. Uh, again, nothing but fond memories. But like I said, I feel like he never necessarily, he never thought of me as one of his guys. And that's okay. I, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Kevin Smith. Uh, Kevin, I love. Kevin, I was a fan of, you know, before I met him. It was interesting because we had the same agent, which is obviously a very L.A. thing to say. And I remember them always going, do you want to meet him? Do you want to meet him? And I don't I never want to meet somebody without a reason. I, I, I that's always a bothersome thing for me. Um, I, you know, we joked earlier, I collect a lot of things. And so there are artists that I collect where it's always like, do you want to meet the guy? Do you want to meet the guy? And I never want to meet them because I don't want them to like. I want to meet them and have them be hateful or awful and then want to go home and throw my collection out the window. <laughs> so it was always like, do you want to meet Kevin? Do you want to meet Kevin? And it was sort of like, well, I do, but I don't. And um, when this idea, which was soon after I had uh, gone from Seinfeld into my uh, development deal, this notion of turning clerks into an animated show kind of came up and they were like, would you be interested? And then, and that was when I sort of said, yes, that's a great reason to meet him. I wasn't, 100% sure I wanted to do the show. I didn't know what he wanted to do in the show, but I was like, I want to meet him. And I remember going down to New Jersey, uh, to Red Bank, where he was, you know, based at the time and stuff. And I think we went and we sat at uh, this like diner that he liked to go to. And we sat there and it was so funny. It was just one of those sort of like, that sounds so odd to say, but just these, one of these just like magical connections where it was just, we were we had watched the same SNL stuff. We had loved the same movies and quoted it. We read the same comic books, and it was just one of these things. And then out of that came the Clerks cartoon, which we were sort of just saw in this really fun way. And I just you know we were a couple of years I think too early. If we were doing that Clerks cartoon thing now, I I I I I, I there's stuff in that Clerks cartoon that is some of the stuff that I'm most proudest of in my life. Our second episode was a clip show. I I will I, I will I will defend that episode. You know uh, I I just think it's something very special and uh, I loved every second of working with him and even just sort of. I, we we live near each other now, so it's always sort of fun when I'm driving down the hill of like, oh, I get to run into him and vice versa. And he's a huge Veep fan, which I had known. Um, I He had told me that I had gone uh, on his uh, last movie, Tusk. He'd invited me over to watch it before it was in theaters, just in his, uh, in his you know, in his uh, office, which was just so fun. And, uh, and I think I even pop in as an extra on... Uh, Jay and Bob strike back. You see me standing in front of a bus drinking coffee. And I, I think I'm in a deleted scene. But I, so it's always just fun to see him and hang out. But I knew he was a big Veep fan. So I made sure he was kind of getting the episodes when like the press were getting them, not for him to review them, but just because he was a fan. And I 
honestly just I I just I, I wanted to know. I mean, it's don't get me wrong. It's been nice that people have been really enjoying Veep, but when you hear it from another writer person that you respect, that's kind of great. And I was really happy when he kind of when he dug it. So that was nice. Yeah, the late Phil Hartman. Oh man. I, 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 you know, you can watch that show and I don't think you'll ever, you can watch SNL, you can watch news radio and I don't think people will ever get quite how good he was just the way he processed stuff and could just go from character to character to character to character. You know, I was a young guy. He was there my first two years. I don't pretend like we were great friends in any way, shape or form, but I'll always remember when I was on Seinfeld we did this gag where we needed a, a voice on the other end of the phone and we got Phil to do it. And I went and supervised the session. I hadn't seen him in like, you know, a year or two. And, you know, again, the little things he just could, you know, he certainly acted and I don't mean this in a phony way. He was glad to see me on a level beyond what our relationship had been. And it was just really nice. And I used to pop by news radio a little bit cause I knew, those guys and actually had almost worked there before the Seinfeld thing happened. Um, and it was just always just nice to see him and just such a, such a loss, obviously. Conan O'Brien. Uh, I don't know Conan that well. My experiences with Conan, obviously beyond the show itself have just been, um, uh, you know, we're both lampoon people. And so when I think of Conan, I always think of him, um, there was like a, uh, a, a dinner, uh, a lampoon dinner where he kind of got up and spoke. And I just, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, those few minutes where he was speaking were some of just the funniest minutes of anyone sort of getting up and talking that I've ever seen. And I, I just, I always remember that. <laughs> Larry David. Not as good curmudgeonly or grouchy or whatever word you want to use as you think. Bit of a softy, dare I say. Uh, the thing I love about Larry is a lot of the stuff on the show is stuff that he sort of thinks of doing, but doesn't actually act on in real life. We sort of save it for the show and do it on the show. <laughs> Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, I always think of as the fish that got away. Um, I had the pleasure of when I was at SNL of Alec hosting a whole bunch of times. And it was, I, I'm not the only one that has ever said this. He was just so funny when he came into the show and we would really, we'd save stuff up for him. And there are episodes of him hosting uh, that, oh God, it's just so fun. The stuff we did with him. We did one sketch that I don't care. It's again, uh, to me, it's smart, stupid. Something Al Franken and I wrote. It was a 60s sort of men from uncle kind of uh, parody, like fake TV show called The Mimic, where he was sort of the mimic, the master of a thousand voices. And uh, Julia Sweeney was this sort of elegant woman whose husband had been kidnapped or something like that. And she hires them. He shows up and he's awful. And a lot of his mimicry is just like, Hey, how you want a pizza? And it's just terrible. He's an awful mimic. And like, he does an impression of her where he's just, he's like, I'm you. And then Paul, I think Paul McCartney was hosting. And so Paul McCartney was playing the butler and then he doesn't, Paul McCartney, it was, he was the worst impressionist ever. But again, that sort of courage and conviction and that handsomeness to pull it off. And when 
we were done with those episodes. You know, when when I when I left SNL, we had stayed in touch and were for, for friendly for a while. And he had, even then was talking about doing a sitcom. And I tried, and I I guess we just never had the great idea. And I never had like, I never had like, and and I guess this was maybe my stupidity. I never had like, a, I never like was like, hey, Touchstone Television help me land Alec Baldwin for this idea. It was always sort of me getting together with Alec or me getting together with Alec and his guy. And it just, I never could make it happen. I never could. And I was so happy for him when they did 30 Rock and yet, of course, incredibly jealous. So, The late Chris Farley. Oh, uh, just uh, such a sweet guy. And I'm sure people have said this in other places, you know, there was an aspect to him of just like such a big puppy dog in a weird way and just sort of wanted to have fun and just wanted to make people laugh, wanted to make people laugh on the show, wanted to make you laugh in the office, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful way. Um, I, I, my, my fondest memory, dare I say, is uh, we did him, you know, in that sort of that third year of the show, we were having trouble doing political sketches because the Dana and the Phils had left. And so Chris ended up being Newt Gingrich, and that was the whole Gingrich contract with America, Republican thing. And we did a sketch where they were sort of racing and jamming through other provisions in the contract with America. And uh, Chris got invited down to D.C. to talk to like a Republican caucus breakfast. So I went down with Chris and just, you know, worked with him and wrote stuff and got on the cards, whatever, so that he could kind of, he you know, he wasn't. I'm not quite sure he knew how he knew it was important and big, but I'm not quite sure he knew who all these people were. And it was, just, you know, a lot of Republican heavy hitters. And we went in there and did this thing uh, and really, you know, just sort of it was it was just wonderful to watch him because on the one hand, I'm not sure he quite knew every little subtle reference we were making to certain bills and things that were going on. God damn, he just played it with the conviction and just won them all over. And I remember the, the part that I loved was walking through like the hallways of Congress. And I remember John Kerry, who was a senator at the time, stopping Chris to like get a picture with him. And it was just like, I guess I hadn't been a, out and about with a lot of like the SNL cast, maybe a little bit, but it was always New York where New Yorkers kind of take everything with a grain of salt. And it was just amazing to sort of see that rock star power, even in DC that Chris had. It was just kind of amazing. And he was always, and I, and I know it sounds silly, and again, but we've talked about it. He was also always very grateful. He was always very grateful with, like, when you wrote for him, when you did stuff with him, and hell, it was always, again, always nice to hear that kind of stuff. Jerry Seinfeld. It's funny. Jerry's just, I, I think of him as the pro. I don't know what else other word to use. He's like, it's like, or the professional. I think if you remember that Luke Besson movie about the assassin who, like, every morning, like, pulls out one of his matching suits and then has breakfast the same way and then goes and just efficiently kills the person in the exact <laughs> perfect way. And I, sometimes I think of Jerry in that way. He's just, it's just like everything he does is very specific and thought out and just like not a wasted moment. And obviously he gets there with his act by working on it, but it, and, but just every word is perfect. Every spot is perfect. And what I really remember about him, what I really loved was when Larry left the show, because I did one season, with, I, I hung out for some of a season, and then I did a season with Larry, and then Larry left the show, and then we did two seasons without him. And uh, 
my first episode of the season without Larry was the Bizarro Jerry episode. And, you know, I sometimes joke that, you know, when I die, that'll be the one thing that kind of gets mentioned on my, my tombstone. Um, I, and I just remember the fact that as that was sort of as Seinfeld sort of took its turn a little bit, even more into sort of a little bit of absurdity. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that a lot of us, a lot of the second generation of Seinfeld writers were fans of the show. So we had sort of watched the show as viewers and then kind of were commenting a little bit on the show as people who had watched the show. So you, we started to make more jokes about how disposable the girl, the Jerry girlfriends were each week. And we were sort of ever so slightly, never breaking the fourth wall, but ever so slightly commenting on the show. And then ideas like the Kenny Rogers chicken roaster and the Bizarro Jerry, I think were, you know, a little out there, but boy, Jerry just was so excited to try it. And I, and uh, I, I just, I love that. Lauren Michaels. <sighs> I don't know. The Godfather. It's funny because I, I went back about a month or two ago, Julia hosted SNL and I went back with her and I wrote on, I wrote for the week and it was so weird because I hadn't worked there since, uh, I guess since, uh, 95. I left in the, I left after the, I was there for three years. I was there 92, 93, 93, 94, 94, 95. I left at the end of 95 and nothing has changed. I mean, <laughs> the only thing that changed is you have to pay for your own, like, Starbucks like that's that we used to get the, the the food and the drink for free but now you pay but otherwise it is this it is the same it's like a guy with a messy desk who knows where everything is that that's Saturday Night Live Do you know what I mean it's like there's no formal structure per se and yet it's everyone is following this sort of weird rhythms and I found myself there on, you know, the writing night at like whatever it was, one, two in the morning. And I kind of just giggled like, I can't believe I'm sitting here um, doing this again. And, and it was fantastic for a week. Glad I'm not there <laughs> full time. But uh, gosh, it was great. Everybody was very welcoming and all that kind of good stuff, too. But it was really weird. I mean, it was like this odd combination of like going back to your high school where every, or your elementary school, where everything seems smaller where you're like, boy, were the urinals that low? And yet lots of familiar faces, a lot of support staff, still the same people. Cute car guy, Wally. He's still a cute car guy. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so, so much the same. And yet you've changed and you're in a different place, but you're back there and, but you, you fall back into it very easily. And I, and I, it's like a seductive trap. Like, uh, like you kind of go, boy, you could live in New York and you could work here and you do this, but, uh, a week was good, but, uh, yeah, it's a disorganized organization, I guess is my main point. It's amazing to me when I was, when I was back with, uh, with Julia and I was walking around some of, uh, 30 rock and he's got SNL and the tonight show and the Seth show. And they were building the, uh, the sets for Marty and, uh, whatever. And it was just like, Wow, he just he is late night. I guess that's what I should say. The word that jumps to mind is he is NBC late night and all aspects of it, which is just uh good for him. <laughs> Last one, Julia Louis Dreyfus. I've joked about this, uh, and I don't know why I keep going back to it, but uh she's Seabiscuit. Uh, <laughs> 
there's an aspect of Seabiscuit, if you ever read the Laura Hildebrand book, which is he won so many races that at a certain point they started filling his saddlebags with like lead bars to try and slow Seabiscuit down. And then the question was, could he win with lead bars? And he could. And that, that is Julia. We could, you could weigh her down with saddlebags of lead bars. And I mean, you know, people get very hung up in the whole like funniest man, funniest woman. I just think she's the funniest person on television right now. I think she does things in a way where she can like smile and cry or be angry and happy or be confused, but definitive and combine multiple emotions and multiple things in one face where her eyes are doing one thing, her mouth is doing something else, and she's saying something, a third thing, in a way that just no one can. And and just these things that you want in a comedian, her lack of vanity, her willingness to just have pour shit on me and pour some more shit on me. It's just incredible. And uh, I guess at the end of the day, when I, why did I take, if you want to go, why did I take the Veep job? Um, Cause you know, I will say this, I wasn't, if you had asked me like a, you know, whatever, a year and a half ago, what do I want to do? It wasn't necessarily take over a show in its fifth season. Do you know what I mean? Like, that seemed a li- not that I was like, oh, yikes, but it, it did seem like, well, there's probably a certain amount of people are going to go, we don't like it as much and whatever. But, and I think the whole cast is wonderful, but I, I, I sort of couldn't, I couldn't say no to her. I couldn't say no to the opportunity to work with her. I, I, I can only tell you that when we were doing Eurotrip, this is a good example, which was a couple of years after Seinfeld. We just were stealing moves from Julia and trying to teach them to Michelle Trachtenberg. It was just like, this is how Julia would do it, I think. And I don't know what else to say. It just, uh, yeah, it's just a treat and a half, yeah. Your proudest moment in show business. Hmm. I I guess I will say for the moment, although obviously there's lots of things I like and whatever, there was something about the, the morning after the Bizarro Jerry aired where, and again, this is sort of earlier internet, there's no Twitter, so there wasn't that sort of 24-hour a day where like now a Veep episode airs and I can look on Twitter or, or all of a sudden there are seven reviews of the episode. But it was, and I, and I think people forget, you know, where cable wasn't quite cable, there weren't quite as many choices, just how high Seinfeld's ratings were, how popular it was. And that sort of moment of having a show I wrote that was very me with the comic books and all that kind of and references in it, you know, a show about bizarro Superman, if you will, in the Seinfeld world and a lot of other little things from my life and stuff, um, you know, where. Because uh, uh, like the manhand story is in there and that's sort of based on my wife and a lot of stuff like that, where the sort of the not the fallout, but the 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 reception to that as and Seinfeld and it being the show in America was, was pretty insane. Is it an odd thing? You're coming in, Larry's gone. One of your first episodes is the bizarro episode. Is Larry the kind of guy that calls you and says, Dave, when I left, I didn't think anybody would be able to exceed my expectations, but you did it. Or is there a thing you think where Larry's like, Huh, man, just right out of the gate, they just 
nailed it. And guess I wasn't necessary this year. Uh, you know, I'm trying to remember back because um, we would still go to ball games and stuff like that. And I, I, I get a general. I, I kind of remember him liking the show and what we were doing. It was a little different, whatever. Um, I don't think he's not the kind of guy to do that, but he did. I don't remember it. I don't remember a moment like that. Uh, I will tell you, um, you know, like, uh, you know, like, uh, on Veep, for example, you know, you know, he, you know, I don't know. I hope I'm not saying anything out of turn. You know, he gave me a yell and gave a yell to Julia about how much he's liking it. And that meant a tremendous amount. So I'll, I'll certainly say that. So I think he can be the kind of guy that does that. I just don't, I don't remember it. I'm an old man, so. <laughs> Far from it. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. I guess there were sort of two, I guess, that come to mind. I guess one was sort of, you know, I love Eurotrip. I love it dearly. I love the experience. It was really fun and all that. You know, it was it was one of those things where we'd worked so hard on it for two years. I'm sure you've heard this from other people in the movie industry. And sort of, you know, by two o'clock on the Friday it opened, we knew it was not not good. And it you just start to question a lot of choices and decisions in terms of in terms of uh like, you know, what you did and what you didn't do and what you might have done differently. And it definitely made me sort of like think about things hard, you know, very hard. And also in some ways, you know, we had done that. And at the time, I think we'd all hoped that that was the beginning of like movie directing and that kind of stuff. Cause Jeff Alec and I sort of co-directed it, but the director's guild made us pick one of us out of a hat to get the credit. They wouldn't approve us as a team, even though we'd been working as a team for a number of years, which was their hypocrisy. Um, and we couldn't get arrested. And in some ways, it's in a weird way, it's what led to Curb Your Enthusiasm, which was sort of like Larry had an office and we needed an office in a weird way. That's kind of how it happened. Um, uh, so that was definitely sort of a little weird where like I can remember, I can remember like talking with an executive about something about another movie and they started talking about us directing a test scene and you kind of went, <laughs> a test scene? What the heck? And then I can remember once we sort of, we did Seinfeld. We did. I'm sorry. We did one year of Curb Enthusiasm where we helped Larry break the season, but we weren't involved in the production. Um, that was the season he Richard needed the kidney. So we were writing, but we didn't. We weren't there. Then the following season, we started, I guess, more formally exec producing and started directing episodes. And not that some big movie directing break ever happened, but nobody ever asked for a test scene again. So that was sort of, I guess, interesting. Um, I know we talked a little bit about The Dictator, but I was away from my family a lot on The Dictator and definitely did not feel like the time was worth it. And I think I came to certain conclusions about the kind of work I was going to take and sort of, uh, you know, I'm not going to go and be on a set unless I am the director next time, which was nothing against the director, Larry Charles. It was just sort of, why am I here 24 hours a day and, you know, in all these places if it's going to be this, if this is going to be the final product and also... I'm not even really getting an ulti ultimately a say. So, you know, I, I do think you make decisions out of these sort of, dis out of these disappointments, I guess. God, last question. Yeah. What advice do you have for the young artist who's a performer, also the young writer who's growing up maybe in a complex in New York City or somewhere <laughs> along the line and anywhere in the world and 
how would you say to them that they could get to the next level and have the kind of career that you're having? The thing to me that is, I guess, amazing that when I sit back and look at it, and by the way, this, I guess to me, this podcast, by the way, is a part of it, which is just the, the internet. I know it sounds silly to say, but the notion that if you put your mind to it, you could write sketches and start filming them with your friends. And maybe even, even if you were in an improv group, whatever, and start filming them and putting them up because you could do it with your phone. You could do it with your phone and a, you know, a gorilla stand. You don't even need a tripod at this point. You could make stuff. You could get stuff out there. And I guess that's what I always tell people is just, it sounds silly because it's like, oh, keep at it. Um, but honestly, it is that thing of like, if you want to be a writer, just keep writing, just keep generating material. And nowadays, just try and get it out there. Film it yourself. Learn to do that. And you'll not only pick up skills like directing and editing and all that kind of stuff, which maybe isn't a way in or a sideways into something, but get, there, there is the ability to get your stuff out there. And the number of people, like I, when I was in New York and I was talking with uh, my old pal, Mike Shoemaker, who was back in the day an associate producer at SNL and is now uh, the, I think, exec producer of the Seth Meyers show and had done the same on the Jimmy Fallon first incarnation, the late night Jimmy Fallon, and now the late night Seth Meyers show. It sounded like 90% of his writers are Twitter people. And so the fact that if you want to write jokes, that you can just write jokes and put them out on Twitter, and if they're good enough, cream will rise to the top and you can be found. But you know how you're not going to do it is sitting, whatever, in your basement complaining about how all the shows suck and how you could do a better job, but you don't necessarily write those jokes. And I'm sure any of those Twitter people would tell you they didn't write their first joke and then it got a million hits and they got a job on whatever on, you know, the Seth Meyers show. They wrote a lot of jokes. They wrote a shitload of jokes. You know, it's, you know, whatever, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours. But it's like writers write. They don't write one script where, you know, I don't know, George dates a transvestite and then angrily sit around going, wouldn't George date a transvestite? I don't care if you think it's stupid. This is my script. You know what I mean? It's like, no, George wouldn't date a transvestite for a thousand reasons, not because they're a transvestite. I, no problem with any of that because it's stupid and hacky. It's a hacky, shitty idea. That's why he wouldn't do it. That's why it wouldn't be an episode of Seinfeld. And so write another script. And even if you're right that somehow that is brilliant and we're all wrong, then write 10 more scripts. And when you're in charge of Hollywood, pull out your transvestite script and shove it all up our asses and make us pay for it. But don't just sit there angrily with your transvestite script thinking like you're right and we're all wrong and that eventually we'll come to you. Write more. I, I, that's, I guess, it's my, my screed at millennials. So there you go. <laughs> Dave Mandel, you were a wealth of power and information <laughs> well, today. Thank you very much. A thank you so this much. Was really fun. I hope you had a great time. Really enjoyable. Although I really have to go to the bathroom now. <laughs> Me too. All right. Okay. As promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased 
the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Kurt Christie from Hales Corners, Wisconsin. Congratulations, Kurt. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, this one's by Abby Huxley, June 29, 2014. Title is Great Insight into the Entertainment Business, five stars. And it reads, I'm a musician and I get a lot out of this podcast because it's packed with great lessons and business that are applicable across all mediums. Thanks, Barry. Well, thank you, Abby Huxley. Congratulations. All right, before I go, I want to give a plug to a friend of mine who's very, very sweet, wonderful, intelligent, smart, beautiful, does a podcast called The Tao of Comedy. Her name is Kelly McLean, and I did her first episode. Check it out on iTunes. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.